I'm Steph. And you're listening to The Thirst. You can find us online. Twitter, we're at The Thirst. Facebook.com forward slash The Thirst Pod. You can find us on Instagram, we're at The Thirst Pod. Soundcloud.com forward slash The Thirst Pod. And we can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for The Thirst. We're also now on Spotify. You can search for us by looking for The Thirst. Um, and also, if you want to email us, no one does, but we still keep flogging it. Uh, occasionally, Peggy does. Occasionally, Peggy does. Uh, the Thirst Pod at gmail.com. Remember as well that you can find links to everything that we mentioned on our blog which is thethirstpod.wordpress.com and if you check the show notes as well on this episode um, you'll find a link to the blog there and also some helpful time stamps lots of further reading yes this is episode 35 it is we're finally back it's been a, a hot girl summer and now we're back <laughs> it's been a, that the implication there is that we've experienced a hot girl oh, summer oh yeah absolutely let's all just assume I've experienced a hot girl summer and haven't just been I don't know I don't know what I've been doing with my time or just covering myself in sun lotion and avoiding the heat avoiding something the like heat. that something, something like that, that. Um, do you have any 35 related pieces of content I mean I was like 35 millimetre I oh, guess yes, I've written that down filmic filmic yeah. um, and then also I just like ages again I've got into this now I've got into the swing of celebrity oh can I just ages. tell you the one age I wrote down go on Avril Lavigne is 35. No, she's not. Is she she really? is, yeah. Oh, I guess... Oh, God, yeah, we're 30, so actually, that doesn't... Yeah, that makes... Oh, jeez. That makes sense. Other people who are 35, Donald Glover. Is he really? Mm-hmm. Sure. Calvin Harris. Uh, I forgot he existed. Me too. Another person you forgot existed, Patrick Stump. <laughs> From Fallout Boy. Yes, he's in also 35. Sure. And finally, Stephen Yin. Stephen Yen, 35? Yes. Oh, Stephen What a Yen. hot piece. Woo! I think out of all of those, he's probably looks the best for 35. Who would you snog the most? I think it's Stephen Yen. I think it's Stephen Yen. Follow and then Donald Glover. Glover. Yes. And I'll just leave Patrick Stump to someone else. Sure. So we're recapping on some news uh, from the past few weeks. Feels like the past few months, actually. So it's been a long time. So we're going to start off with something that happened quite a while ago, but it seemed remiss of us not to mention it. It would be weird if we didn't. Like it or not, we're covering it, and it is Harry Styles' Rolling Stone interview. God bless the eternal sunshine of Harry Styles. I like that that was the title for it. Beautiful. What really, a title. Really wonderful. Good hits, Rob Sheffield. Hits all the right spots, yes. So it was written by Rob Sheffield, who uh, the author and music journalist. Harry, we know, loves Rob's books. He was seen clutching a copy of Love is a Mixtape before. That was that was a glorious time, wasn't so it? so cute. Just love this content. Um, so Sheffield and Styles bonded over music and are both big music geeks, as they say. So uh, Sheffield had said, quote, if you give me pretty much the month of any year, I can tell you what the popular music was that month. And Harry Styles is very much the same. So this is the sort of thing they bonded over together. I can just imagine them having a real nice time. Just both massive dorks. And they've spent this feature driving around California. Rob visits him in LA and London. They drive in numerous cars because, of course, Harry has numerous cars. They visit studio. They go for lunch in all of Harry's favourite spots. Apparently, he seems to be a creature of habit. He has the same places that he likes to go to. Don't we all? I can't imagine Harry Styles driving. No. That was one of my takeaways from that piece, is the idea of Harry driving a car. Like, very alien. driving, like, sensibly as well. I just can't imagine I feel like it. he'd be quite reckless. Yeah. I feel like he'd be very distracted by Spotify. 
just constantly just like harry stop looking at yeah. changing the tracks like stop if you're gonna have a playlist you need to line up the playlist before you start driving stop doing it they also went and saw fleetwood mac together in london of course which they is did. just peak that's such harry peak harry um the photo let's the photos i just because this happened in august yes the 26th, I believe, a seminal day for us all. Um, I had sort of forgotten about exactly how much they'd flawed us all. And the, the thing the I had... The thing I'd forgotten the most is the fact that it I was at work and it went online and I was having an absolute meltdown and neither Every you... Every time a fucking meltdown. Yeah. Neither you or Vaughn were responding in the group chat. I don't know where I was. I think you may probably be... Probably in a meeting. Vaughn was probably asleep because of the time difference. I've had to you... stop bringing my phone to meetings because of things like this you in really... which my phone goes mad and people were like someone died it's like no harry styles released an interview i just could i just couldn't cope with the fact that you were both incommunicado the two people in the world who understand this and it's rare and i was just like absolutely losing my shit trying to remain calm because these photos are just so much it's just the interview was one thing but the photo set going with it and it was the fact that it was like the photos appeared first Oh. And then it was the fucking yeah because interview. they released the because someone released someone leaked the cover, and everyone was just like this is a Photoshop because this like nipple conscious it was a lot wasn't armpit it? hair photo is so much that it can't be real and everyone was waiting for Rolling Stone to confirm and then they eventually confirmed and then we just got this influx of photos it's just so much there's like berets and amazing outfits and flares and like which was just, your favorite of the, the... it's quite difficult. I like the one where he's like sat on the rock, sort of being cheeky. That was nice. Um, but also the nipple picture. Yeah. He's very tanned in these photos. He's like a bronze god. He really is a bronze god. Um, and worth saying, of course, that he was styled by the imitable Harry Lambert, as he always does, who also did a really good Margaret Atwood shoot. Recently. She did, didn't she? Oh, so good. I was really pleased when I saw that shoot and then I saw that it was Harry Lambert. That was fucking so really good. pleasing. Um, some very quick notable points when Harry talks about the new album and how it's about, quote, all about having sex and feeling sad. Mood. Great. He talks about Harry's photo with Van Morrison and how um, Rob says, like, he's pretty much sure that over the past 50 years, Van Morrison has never cracked a smile in a photo until we met Harry Styles. I think my favourite thing about Harry Styles, one of my favourite things, I guess, is is just how much he loves Van Morrison. Probably yeah. more, the only person in the world that loves Van Morrison more than, like, my dad. Yeah. And also the fact that these huge figures of music, like Van Morrison and Stevie Nicks, they're absolutely beside with Harry Isn't Styles. Isn't it funny? I love it. I mean, I feel like it gives me legitimacy. Like, it's so cute. You think my feelings are silly. I mean, firstly, they're not. But secondly, you're honestly going to dispute Stevie Nicks' taste. I don't think so. I don't think so. It's a lot. The bit where he talks about doing mushrooms and a bit off the tip of his tongue. This is a thing he does now because he's the, really um, cool. The drug element was an interesting choice. Yes, interesting it? choice. It, uh, it's, you know, it's establishing himself as a real serious hipster musician. Well, I think that was what I was just going to say is that it's a little bit like I mean, there's so much to be said and and many people have written on the fact that there's so much that's unknowable about Harry and he's very clever in the way that he um, manipulates the way that he is perceived and, and actually, you know, there's that ongoing discussion that we've had and other people have had about actually like what do we actually know about Harry Styles? Yeah. And and it to so for this for me, the fact that he decided to 
bring that to the forefront mm. and to talk about that was a very interesting choice which I think for me maybe plays into this idea of him wanting to yeah. legitimise himself yeah, as yeah, like yeah. a serious you know serious creative creative musician. he's taking mushrooms he's experimenting you know he knows he has all this like amazing knowledge of yeah. music and talks a bit about his relationships as well doesn't he with the like uh, was it Rob's pet no it wasn't Rob's shoes it was someone's shoes and Harry's ex-girlfriend had gifted the pair of shoes and all of this stuff um, I felt like it was more than we usually get to be fair I think it's one of the most eye-opening Harry mm. related pieces profiles I think I've read definitely I was really taken back by it in that sense I think because there were sort of little tidbits in it that I was like oh okay that's a that's an interesting reveal or I'm surprised that he's been a so open in talking yeah, about that yeah it's really interesting isn't it he talks I mean he has talked before this is something we do know that I think a lot of the other One Direction guys um, like Liam recently for example have talked about sort of 1D like you know not being them or you know it wasn't they weren't being themselves fully during that stage and when they're in the band and Harry's always steadfastly said that it was him and he never held back and that he very much was being himself in that band which is basically completely the opposite to what all of the others say. I find it really interesting actually how he he's very respectful of what One Direction achieved and what they mean to fans mm. and I always think that's really heavily reflected in the way that he does talk about them in the press he's not dismissive of of their achievements he's not dismissive of the work that they did or that entire fandom mm. he, you can tell that actually he understands that without that he wouldn't be where he is now and yeah. I think that does contrast very interestingly with people like Zayn yeah. and like Liam who yeah. seem to want to completely reject this boy band yeah and you kind origin. of can't you can't blame them for no, it but completely. also I think this attitude does come on respect as well mm. And did you listen to the podcast that accompanies this? I haven't, no. So there's this Rolling Stone podcast where Rob is on the podcast talking about his experience with Harry. And they talk about how, obviously, you know, Harry is incorporated um, playing, like, What Makes You Beautiful into his sets and stuff like that. And how he's obviously taking, carrying that part of his history with him, which I think is really interesting. Talks a little bit about sort of championing various causes or, you know, not wanting to be a figurehead of things like Black Lives Matter, but, you know having stickers on his guitar and wanting to be you know someone who's there in support of people but isn't saying you know isn't the one to lead the cause I I did like that actually how he does acknowledge the fact that he knows that he has a platform and a privilege as a white man Mm. and how he realizes that that's important to fans in the sense that he has that arena mm-hmm. to to platform other voices mm-hmm. to platform other causes and that you know i mean we talked on the podcast yeah. after we saw him and how he was uh, he's a very much an advocate for lgbtqia mm-hmm. like the community as a mm-hmm. whole there and how there's been this sort of how he's drawn attention to sort of black lives matter and i think mm-hmm. that was either mentioned in rob's piece or it might have actually been in ha- in fangirls as yeah well, yeah i think they both they both talk about it he talks about it in this as well yeah, yeah. and it's you know so the fact that he actually has an awareness of, of and it's, it's a difficult one isn't it because i can understand that you don't want to be you know if you're acutely aware of your position you you know you know that it's not up to you to be or you don't want to be seen as you're trying to like commandeer those things mm-hmm. or you know lead the cause when it's not your arena but you also know that you can't ignore it so you have to acknowledge it and 
say to people i see you without yeah completely without seeming like you're stepping on toes or trying to use it to your advantage yeah completely and it feels like a very modern approach to it um something i'll probably mention later on actually when we talk about the new taylor swift record is there was a really interesting uh guardian profile by laura snapes about taylor swift and she mm. talked about in that about how she'd kept silent for a very long time about her political mm. leanings God, yeah and yeah. how actually she felt she'd gotten into a position where she understood that by not saying anything people were crying out for it it was having more they? damage than if she was saying something and i do think that you know it's it's it must be quite tricky as a as for to be someone as famous as taylor swift and as harry styles mm-hmm. and to sort of tread this line between i don't want to put myself at the center of, of issues but at the same time by not saying something i'm actually being kind of um i'm yeah i'm doing more harm than good yeah especially when you've got that platform as you say you have to kind of be seen to you you're positioning yourself without saying too much i guess yeah um, completely. the other couple of things were just the fact that he like obsessively fanboys over Joni mitchell pulp fiction paul mccartney and wings like fucking hipster He's did you um hipster. have you listened to the spotify playlist no i haven't actually it's 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 a ride because it's uh, I will link to it as well so Rolling Stone put together like a playlist on Spotify they had a full content package yep. to go with this very canny. Um so they put together a playlist that went alongside um, this particular piece and it's just it's like lots of things that are mentioned in the article like mm-hmm. songs and bands that Harry likes it's got Harry's own music on there it's got some One Direction on there and it's this really interesting what a lovely mix. mix it really is an interesting mix of kind of his personal interests and the sort of work that he's been involved with and it's, it's so just it does go from like especially if you put it on shuffle which I have a tendency to do and it does go from like all Joni Mitchell to like One Direction like One Direction yeah. which I feel is like just... that adequately represents our brains as well though, well so that's, that's why I love it so much because it's the type of thing that I'm really into so oh, yeah definitely and finally also in that vein I just want to acknowledge the fact that he has a wall sized frame Sex Pistols album cover um I think that might Which be the most embarrassing part. So embarrassing. I'm glad to know that this cool boy is not beyond uh, having something as embarrassing as a fucking frame sex pistol. He's cover. just a really serious rock musician, Steph. Oh my god. So. But like, yeah, boy's first bedroom. It's a really good read and I really recommend that anyone um, seek it out. We will link to it and um, just spend some time with Harry. I think it's worth it, even if you're not very invested in Harry Styles. I think even if you if you know nothing about him, I think it's a nice little introduction. About if you're a Murakami I... scholar, maybe you should oh, give yeah. it a read. Oh yeah, he loves Murakami, doesn't he? <laughs> um, another profile which knocked us to six. Can I just say, I'm, just, I'm eternally grateful for Rolling Stone and GQ, in spite of their flaws, we always um, just we always seem to focus on the the work that they are doing, <laughs> the Lord's work. Just really, really, really supporting their work, and they are truly giving us the phone wallpaper content we need. Right. So the last episode we recorded was was our kind of Quentin Tarantino once upon a time in Hollywood um, special ep, mm-hmm. um, and we talked there about kind of the. I don't want to say it's a renaissance because it's not really a renaissance. There is he, no renaissance. How he, can it be a renaissance for someone who never truly left? Because he didn't go anywhere. But um, so Brad Pitt, there was a profile in GQ by Zach Barron. Zach Barron always does really good profiles. He's one yeah. of my favourite um, profile writers, actually, that's currently working at the moment because he just has a real nice way of putting things These together. These were two very good profiles. They were, weren't they? So it's um, in GQ. It was released on the 16th of September. So it's kind of come after the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood press tour and sort of leads into the... Um, ad astra promotion that brad pitt's been doing so the piece itself is a really interesting read but i think the thing i mostly like to focus on at just this current juncture is the editorial that went with it because i cannot adequately put into words exactly the impact it had on me 
Harry Styles was one thing. This is... But I actually think this this ruined my day. Other level. I actually feel like I want to cry. It is shocking. It's shocking. Truly speechless. He is so handsome. He's so fucking amazingly, unbelievably handsome in this. It just makes me want to vomit. And there's just there's a whole variety of things. So there's not only just the him smoking making it look the like smoking the outfit choices the outfit i just the styling in this is just they they know what to do with him they know not to go too flashy because it's just not brad Pitt. just hanging out by the pool he's just hanging out in a house he's got playing. a bit of stubble he's got a bit of silver going on like he's not freshly shaven um I don't know if you listened to the episode of Jam Session, um, the Ringers sort of pop culture podcast, where they Zach Barron was present on that. Uh, I think I listened to some of it, actually, yeah. Yeah, so Zach Barron is married to Amanda Dobbins, who writes yes. for The Ringer, and Amanda Dobbins, known big Brad Pitt fan, mm-hmm. and they got Zach Barron on to talk about the editorial, and he's basically talking about um, sort of how the piece came together, mm-hmm. you know, what it was like to meet Brad, what he's like. And he, there's a really nice tidbit in that where he talks about how he went to the shoot and that's not normally standard procedure for mm-hmm. the person that's interviewing the celebrity or, or figure to go to the shoot. It's yeah. usually a separate thing, but he went because the, the schedule was so tight. And he said he, he in that podcast, he talks about how when they were um, taking some of the photos, one of the shots is where he's playing table tennis. Oh my God, that is such a beautiful shot. And he said how there was just people like gaggled around the monitors that were showing the images that were being taken. And he said like normally when these photo shoots happen, it's sort of a case of like having to sort of pick out the images that are yeah. the best ones and going from there. But everyone was just beside themselves because like they weren't taking bad lose, pictures. I just lose my shit. Like every single shot of him bit. was like the best shot ever. Like I just I think we I think we touched upon in that once upon a time in Hollywood episode probably tried to have a bit more I don't know just tried not to be this ridiculous over it but I can barely handle it anymore, I think so the, I, I think we mentioned in that episode the fact that he's like truly one of our last big movie stars like he, he has movie star aura and this comes across freakishly in this case. famous like it's, he is so famous he can't go to particular cities he talks about it in the piece he can't he? There, there are so many things he can't do and he is so freakishly famous that. It's just, it's beyond, like, apprehension that you would ever be in the same room as him. Like, it's just, he he exists on a totally different plane. And there's so few people that exist on that plane. It's, um, it's, it's mad. It's really. palpable as well. Because I do feel like when you watch him on screen or when you look at pictures of him, or even if you just read something about him, you're, he's one of, the, one of the few actors, I think, now, for me, where it really is like, holy shit, he is so famous. And he's been so famous Crazy. for such a long time. To, he has not lived a f- he's lived a life that's so I don't know it just must be such an odd way to live it's bizarre for isn't it? so long to be what was it there was something I can't remember what it was but he was talking about how he hadn't basically gone through the front door lobby of a hotel for like 30 years isn't that why like he has to go in like the shitty way like the shitty like staff lift at the back because well, he, he, he can't go into a hotel no and he mentions how he basically can't go to new york yeah or spend oh, yeah, any real time in new york it like paparazzi just can't do it which is just it's, it's actually quite sad and i mean i think we'll come on to this when we talk about ad astra perhaps but there is this sort of like from that piece especially it does it does sort of throw up this idea of actually how that must be so isolating and so lonely and obviously he's been borderline unlivable he's been through so many significant 
breakups mm-hmm. in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. So obviously you have the end of his marriage with Jennifer Aniston. Mm-hmm. And then Which is still spoken about all the time. Yep, they were real Hollywood royalty. And then you have the way that his relationship with Angelina Jolie came mm-hmm. to an end as well. And sort of all the kind of uh, negativity that surrounded that as well. And the inevitable fallout of the custody battle and all the kind of, you know, court related dealings that went on with that. And, and actually like to be so famous and have, you know, every single person in the world know who you are like mm-hmm. want to be on top of what you're doing at mm-hmm. any moment like you basically can't it must be really hard to form relationships it must and, and, and I'm not Even saying friendships that, though yeah. like that's why the, the this sort of you know this time he spent with Leo is interesting and I think is noticeable because you, you can understand that probably for them this is the first time in a long time they've got to spend time with someone who truly understands what it means yeah, to be as I'm, famous as they are and I'm not saying that like we should feel bad for multi-millionaire actors because you know god knows they've got access to everything in the world that we never will but, but there's a lot of loss involved as well you you sacrifice a lot in order to do it's that, interesting to think about the fallout of yeah okay he's probably got a really nice compound where he's mm. got everything where he needs so actually he doesn't need to leave the house but like i would go fucking mad even if i had Ugh. like everything i needed at my disposal so it's just crazy yeah i mean there was a one quote actually that i just wanted to draw attention to it's from it's by director james gray and it's from the zach baron piece And he says, one of the things that I found always very beautiful is the idea that you could make a film about someone that outwardly you think has it all together, but in fact is really battling inner demons. And I felt that Brad had always had that kind of, I don't want to say anger, because anger has negative connotations, but danger in him, you know, and that kind of loneliness, which comes with the territory of who he is, and you use that. And that's like... That's so true, yeah. And he's spoken he's spoken very briefly. I mean again, Brad Pitt's someone that we actually know nothing about. Yeah. Like, despite thinking we see his every move, but he talks, I think, during the Ad Astra like promo tour, he's spoken about how like he just doesn't indulge in any vice at all anymore because he knows that if he even does it a little bit he'll never stop so you can imagine like all of these internal struggles definitely it's bizarre but i mean it's, it's really an interesting profile and and especially as you were saying like in terms of thinking about celebrity culture and fame and that sort of thing it's really it's an odd one it does feel like something we've discussed at length this year actually yeah. and i know that that was one thing that we came back to a lot when we were talking about once upon a time in hollywood and actually it's if anyone's interested in that and they haven't listened to that mm. episode definitely go back and do it because we talked about this idea of how that film in particular uses brad pitt's celebrity mm. and it is it, that in that is a real contrast to ad astro oh really we'll it's a really interesting year for him definitely but definitely go and have a read of the article and uh, check out those photos, first of all, because they, uh, they'll make you feel terrible and great all in one go. Just a lot. A lot of feelings. On to another, I want to say quick bit of news, but it's not really news because this happened back in like July or something ridiculous, but it was something we didn't realise. It was a revelation I brought to your attention when we were talking about said person. Yeah, and I just, I feel like we have to acknowledge it because it's so funny and just... A mad thing to happen and maybe other people don't know about it um and we were talking specifically about the scars guards we were because we've just seen it chapter two which we're going to talk about so we were i was mostly talking about bill scars and then we were also talking about alex scars because of the latest news that he has been announced for the stand the stephen king novel the adaption of the stand uh, that's coming out um, and he's going to play Randall Flagg. So we were talking about that and then you said to me, have you seen that Blind Gossip article about the Liar Clown Brothers, which happened back in July? So for those who don't know, this is what it says on the Blind Gossip website. 
Liar and Clown are close as two brothers can be, but Liar has friends outside the family too, including this third actor. Liar and Third did everything together. They vacationed together, went to sporting events together, etc. Clown would sometimes tag along too. Third introduced his significant other to the brothers. They all became friends. Then Clown made a move on her. She took him up on it. Uh Uh-oh, not so funny. There is now a rumour going round that Clown got her pregnant. We don't know if she's pregnant, but we do know that Clown's relationship with her has splintered all of the relationships in the group. So, this was a big scandal in Sweden. I, I just, love the idea of there so being good. a scandal in, big that, in Sweden, that only guys. happens in Sweden. Oh yeah, big big scandal. Everyone in Ikea was talking about it. <laughs> so, um, turns out, this is about the Skarsgårds. Alex Skarsgård was best friends with uh, an actor called, I think it's Fares Fares? Fares was dating a Swedish actress, Alida Morberg, and the rumour in Sweden was that they were engaged. Uh, Morberg is now dating Bill Skarsgård and has a baby with him, which was born last October. Uh, Alex and so Alex Skarsgård and Fares are no longer talking. I was just amazed by this because I had seen that Bill Skarsgård had a baby, magically, but I didn't realise it was like a love rat baby. And they what a love rat. essentially stolen his brother's best friend's girl um, and it had splintered the whole family. So I'm just very intrigued by this. And also, I think it actually makes me on some level fancy him more because he's just a bit of a rat and quite filthy. I think that when we talked about this initially, my, that was my immediate question afterwards, was like, I somehow think that I fancy Bill Skarsgård more, do you? And you were like, yeah, absolutely. Just like, thinking about this, this is deeply awful and would bang. I think so... that, I think we should definitely utilise blind gossip a lot more. Oh my God, definitely. It's something to check in with. If other people haven't gone on blind gossip, it is a revelation of a website I mean, there's loads of people on there from an American point of view that I don't even really know who they are. Yeah, same. But there are some gold. There are some specks of gold in there. The thing I like about it as well is that they'll they'll post these sort of blind items and then they'll eventually update it when it's been sort of like out and sold, solved. Or, yeah. solved or like love it so much. I feel like all of our future news items are going to be informed in some way by blind gossip. So um, that was just our favourite blind gossip from the past few weeks. We wish Bill the best. So, uh, sort of, I guess, award season is not on the horizon. Oh, God. Do you get do you get award season fatigue? I feel like we're uh, always talking about awards. Yeah, sometimes. I do feel like that ends up being something we end up talking about for months on end, but I also sort of quite like it. Oh, yeah, you get some real, you get some real good bits, real good nuggets. Some nice tidbits. Nice moments, great gifts. <laughs> so, uh, last weekend was the 71st Primetime Emmys. Um, there was no host this year, but there were lots of good presenters. They sort of paired people up. Um, some of them worked, some of them didn't. I really enjoyed Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Bill Hader. Lovely. Mostly because they are two of the most visually pleasing people oh, in the world. just so fit me, together. So. Yeah, there just needs to be a petition to get them working together because it would just be lush. Um, so lots of things we enjoy were nominated. I don't know why I'm stuck with Game of Thrones because I don't like Game of Thrones, but um, it had the most nominations. It was 14, but Fleabag had the most actual wins. Uh, it won four awards. It won Outstanding Comedy Series, Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series, Outstanding Direction for a Comedy Series, and then Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series. So there's lots of Phoebe Waller-Bridge love. Lovely, lovely. And she did look slamming. She looked amazing. Oh my God, she looked amazing. There was that picture that was going around on the internet webs afterwards of her looking fab in the gown and having a just like sitting on her throne yeah oh 
absolutely bossing it. Just so good. So other notable picks for me specifically, mm-hmm. uh, Jesse Armstrong won for Outstanding Writing in a Drama Series for Succession and oh, the season one finale, which is one of the best finales ever. Um, Bill Hader, my guy, won for um, Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series for Barry, which I adore. I think I've talked about in the podcast. Mm. Um, Jodie Comer won for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series. Interestingly, Sandra Oh was also nominated in this category. Yeah, that's tough, isn't it? Yeah, it really must be tough. difficult to go up against someone you are pals with and have been in the series. I with. feel like they could eat. They were equally deserving. Yeah, if completely. anyone was Well, it is. Win, it's definitely you know. like an equally level sort of totally performance, is. isn't it? Um, Billy Porter won mm-hmm. outstanding lead actor in a drama series for Pose. Um, he's now one award away from an EGOT, oh, which amazing. I hope he got. He needs an Oscar now. Yeah, that's amazing. He's also the first openly gay black man to win that award. So, and his, um, um, his acceptance speech it. was lovely. He quoted James Baldwin and talked He's about always understanding how he does have worth and how, it was, how it's taken him quite a lot yeah. of time to get to this point. And, and and it's just, it was, you know, I love Billy Porter, you love He's Billy Porter. He's just an inspiration always, He's isn't he? What brilliant. a lovely, gracious inspiring person he's Brilliant. fantastic and then also another thing is uh, Michelle Williams won lead actress in a limited series for her role as Gwen Verdon in Fossey mm. Verdon and she did quite an impassioned acceptance speech about pay parity and supporting women actors especially women of colour um, mm. in sort of providing them with what they ask for and what they need to do their jobs and that's sort of um, it was a very nice speech it's good that she used her platform to kind of draw attention to the fact that you know women in Hollywood and careers generally across the board don't often get the same as men uh, oh yeah Michelle Williams in particular has gained some press over the last sort of 18 months about that in particular because obviously when she did the reshoots for the film in which she starred with Mark Wahlberg, the name of which, All the Money in the World, mm-hmm. she only took a sort of a day rate for the, filming the reshoots, whereas uh, Mark Wahlberg took $1 million Imagine extra. being paid less than Mark Wahlberg. That's just upsetting on any it is, level. It is, so, isn't it? So that was... That was doubly a, offensive. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed as well. So I'm, I'm a big fan of her friendship with Busy Phillips. Oh my God. I love Busy Phillips Busy so much. Busy and Michelle, I think so lovely. They're, the they're way, like us. They in, are the celebrity I just relate to them so much you know Michelle Williams is arguably slightly more successful than Busy Phillips but the fact that Busy goes with her to all these awards ceremonies and they are just best pals and she's really supportive and you know just her looking on admirably to Michelle on stage was just like really got me in the feels so good and some of the actually there were lots of very good looks I think as well some of the standout ones were sort of Gwendolyn Christie and Gucci I will be honest and say that she was my by far and away the the best dressed I think for me at that ceremony. 100% she was Jesus just like Jesus she actually just came as Jesus and that's that. fine that is fine she's doing it completely uh, Mandy Moore looked I liked amazing she looked gorgeous yeah. um, Zendaya looked amazing the she, in the green Vera Wang she's just a fox Ooh, so good um, yeah we said Phoebe Waller-Bridge Dan Levy. <laughs> Dan Levy Dan Levy it's just it was actually a complete swoon fest wasn't it but, it was um, yeah but I feel the Brits won big across a lot of major categories there was a lot of love for Fleabag which we loved as you said and uh, there was a lot of love for Chernobyl, and um, it just yeah, I think it was a fairly marvelous Miss Maisel got quite. A, you they know, did, yeah, and uh, I think it was a generally positive awards. Yeah, I mean it was a nice easing into awards season, so I don't think we've got any more now until the end of the year, and then obviously the new year when it all sort of starts to kick off. It'll be interesting. We're getting into a position now where we're starting to see a lot of the films that probably will be nominated. Going to be the front like, runners, yeah, yeah, Golden Globes. Academy it's an interesting awards. time of year, isn't it? It is, isn't it? so uh, definitely have a look at the red carpet because that's always my favourite part just a quick shout out to Timmy Time 
before we move on because I was gonna, I, even I was actually gonna skip this. I and can't you believe bla- this. Just basically told me off. I think I mostly wanted to skip this because I feel like the thing at the forefront of everyone's minds at the moment are those boat pictures, and I just. I mean, they're trash in so many ways. I don't ways. know her. I don't um, know this picture, so I'm going to ignore it. Like, we're just going to forget that even happened because it it doesn't need acknowledging, really. But we did want to shout out his suit at the the King Headline Gala at Venice Film Festival. That was quite unbelievable. And again, just like Twitter imploded, the internet imploded, my ovaries imploded. It was just, it was a lot. He is truly, truly fucking smashing it with the outfits you know the best thing about that it was that so venice was taking place as i was about to get on a plane oh my god yeah to barcelona I and i that. was in the queue boarding trying to do some tweets from the podcast account and tom was getting really annoyed with me because i kept showing him pictures of Timothy Chalamet. secret but he looked amazing it there just was, was too much i mean any time and place is acceptable for that he looked absolutely unreal he just looked fabulous didn't he um, what, what good really boy. really and again we're you know at the beginning of the festival season and well i say we're at the beginning we've we've had venice and we've had toronto and we've got london coming up so i'm sure we'll get lots of other great outfits that i'm very much looking forward to good old tim so on to things we've been enjoying recently and um, we thought we'd start with tv for a change Mix um because we've been watching I feel like all of my time has been spent in succession headspace, but one thing I, I did find time to catch up with was unbelievable. It was. Sorry. It was. was. A funny joke. So it appeared on Netflix on September the 13th. It stars Tony Collette, Merritt Weaver and Caitlin Deaver, amongst others. It's about a series of um, sexual assault in Washington and Colorado and is based on a 2015 news article, An Unbelievable Story of Rape, written by uh, T. Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong and originally published by Pro. Publica and the Marshall Project and um, we'll definitely link to this actually because it's worth a read um, it won a Pulitzer Prize so you know it must have had a profound effect a profound effect um, it was the show was co-created by Susanna Grant Aylett Waldman and Michael Chabon which is why I'd initially initially been brought to my attention mm. uh, Michael Chabon a writer whose sure. work I um, enjoyed to some degree and Aylett Waldman I think is his partner and Susanna Grant as well is notable because she wrote, produced and directed 90s TV show Party of Five as well oh, yeah. as um, Erin Brockovich she was oh, involved with. I didn't know that. So uh, the show is eight episodes and the premise is, as I mentioned, it's a dramatisation of the 2008-2011 serial rape cases. It follows Marie, a teenager who was charged with lying about having been raped and the two detectives who follow a twisting path to arrive at the truth. So what was your initial feeling about the show? I mean, I, I, so I watched it over a sort of two or three days, I think. Vix had been super keen for us to see it and I knew that it was something I was going to get around to, but I, there was a couple of things that I w- was sort of wanted to watch and was doing and I hadn't really made time for it. And then I found some space and I took advantage of it. And um, yeah, so what, what did you think of it initially when you sat down to watch it? Because I feel like we probably had a very similar... Yeah, I think we had a similar reaction. I'd sort of, I'd seen obviously rumblings about it on Twitter I'd read the uh, synopsis on Netflix and just thought that's probably not something I'm going to watch because it sounds fucking devastating yeah. and I'm not in the right, right mindset. But then, yeah, you and Vix were discussing it and you'd basically binged it already by that point. And I thought, okay, maybe I will give it a try. And then I was ill. So I ended up watching it because I was unwell and I had nothing else to do. thought I'd maybe watch a couple of episodes and then, you know, give it some space and leave it. 
particularly as it is quite a difficult subject. Um, but I also ended up binging it within 48 hours. So um, it's clearly a very bingeable thing. I went in knowing nothing about the story apart from that synopsis, so a vague understanding of the premise. Yeah, same. Um, really grueling first few episodes. Is, I had to seek kind of uh, assurance from you that it was going to get quote unquote better because it's really... It's, it enters straight into it and it definitely doesn't shy away from the reality of rape and its effects. It was really interesting actually because you were sort of slightly behind me in watching it and I'd had exactly the same response in that I remember saying to Vix after I watched the first episode like is it all like this because I'm finding this really tough. I don't tough know if I can do this. And I don't actually know if I can do all of it at the moment and she was like no stick with it. So that was my immediate feeling and yeah. then for, to sort of know that you were going through exactly I the same really thing. I really needed reassurance from you that it was going to something was going to change that was going to make it an easier watch in some respect and I think my expectation when I was watching those first few episodes was that it was just going to be you know a series about this huge miscarriage of justice and this awful thing that this one girl has gone through yeah and it's going to center on her and it's just going to be so grueling but actually we have this break a few episodes in where the show kind of turns into a more of a procedural style yeah sort of police drama and it moves a little bit away from Marie or it keeps Marie in mind and keeps going back to her but we also are introduced to Tony Collette as Detective Rasmussen and uh, Merritt Weaver is yep. it Weaver as Karen Duvall another detective their performances are drawn in um, and that's where things really change and you, you have this show that is doesn't show, shy away from the reality of sexual assault but is also very very sensitively handled I mean the three performances are absolutely amazing but the two performances from the from the detectives really really kind of clinched it for me it was just it was actually a really comforting watch watching those two particularly in those early segments with Karen Duval where you see you see a huge juxtaposition between the way that Marie is treated by the male cops like Detective Parker and the way that when Karen Duval is introduced and she is speaking to another lady who's been sexually assaulted and her handling of like the way that is handled is so it's perfect is exactly what you'd want the police to do yeah i think it's a contrast i think it definitely picks up momentum when grace and karen come together when they Mm. end up having to sort of look at this case together because i think it is it is tony collette and merritt weaver who are kind of that it's their sort of burgeoning friendship Mm. and the fact they have to work work these cases and the, the, the sort of differing ways of approaching it and but i think you're right that that first episode is an absolute gut punch because it really it's is. Marie's... I don't think I could handle eight episodes of that. No, because it's Marie's case being handled by largely men and then the second episode is when Merritt Weaver's character appears mm. and then she's sort of handling the case. And I think hand on heart, I've never seen a show that pivots yeah. so aggressively like that, but in a way that's so purposeful that is designed to make you realise that it really does in those situations come down to the person who turns up on your doorstep yeah right it really does and i just think that it was just the way that it was put together and the fact that you've got you know when when um when karen uh takes i think it's it's sarah yeah that might be wrong when she takes her aside and she's you know so sarah's a sort of making excuses for sort of things that she might have done or Mm -hmm. or things that she's not sure about and karen's just like no like this is 
I'm not judging you. Like yeah. you do. And Doesn't just, matter if you get things wrong or misremember or like, you've been through traumatic. And it's just it the, really is like the do and don'ts of yeah, how to handle this kind of crime. Completely, and it's just very interesting to sort of see that juxtaposition in an immediate kind of two episode arc. Mm. And I'm really glad that I stuck with it because I really liked the procedural nature. I of love it. procedural, and I mean that's the reason I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. Yeah. Is I really like the procedural element of those, and they're really interesting. And I think it did give you a bit of a respite because you would spend time with Marie and you know what she was going through is hugely harrowing and then you were able to distance yourself a bit um when you were with Grace and Karen because you could look at it from their kind of more objective point of view and they're obviously struggling with the emotions of it as well but there's a bit more distance there so you I feel like it was a really good balance yeah um and, and I, it was com- you know there was there were, were positives there as well as just really depressing negatives yeah and I did like the kind of the, the narrative contrast between the Marie's initial case in mm. 2008 and then the 2011 mm-hmm. and then thereafter and you've got this kind of contrast about how you see the way that and then you you do and revisiting marie in, in a more kind of sort of a later on stage mm-hmm. and you actually see the impact and the you know the trauma that she's still mm. dealing with with what happened to her in 2008 and the fact that how it essentially just ruined her life because of the way yeah. that it was mismanaged and how it was handled and actually like i think that was a very interesting look about how something like this can completely just, just derail you life, and yeah. you know in in her case as well so many people turn against her and mm-hmm. there are lots of things that the the mishandling of it has had oh it's just the ramifications are just yeah. endless and it's just it's such a hard watch but there is also hopeful elements with you know with these two female detectives the the show and the you know the story of um what really happened to the real marie you know it it shows that if you do get the right people there are people out there who can do a good job and can help you um and can do right by you i also really enjoyed that the show barely spends any time with the offender it yeah. stays with the victims a lot and you you hear from a lot of different victims as yeah. well it's not just the, the the two girls that we've spoken about they sort of spend time with uh, you know many different victims from many different walks of life who have different ways of dealing with their trauma which is interesting as well and it's really nice to see those represented i like that as well because it doesn't it shows that there is no one size fits all reaction to something yeah. like that it is so individual and i think that it, the show as a whole actually made a really interesting contrast to me to true detective yeah the most recent season which we talk about in the sense that actually i think why i was so hooked by unbelievable is that it gave me everything that i wanted from mm, a crime procedural mm-hmm. like that absolutely which i felt that this particular and, I, and i'm not making that comparison by saying they're the same thing because they're absolutely not but it no. is interesting actually how i was i really bought into the fact that it was female fronted and yeah. actually how that felt different mm-hmm. to me because I, I you know I, I don't watch a huge amount of crime based tv anymore i used yeah. to be it used to be something i was like very very invested and female in. investigators you know it, it feels like it's rare to hear those stories yeah completely so definitely it's worth a, a pun i think yeah absolutely it's funny that a lot of people and i know on twitter a lot of women have ended up because they're so transfixed by this have ended up binging it and it does i think it and partly i was ill last week so i watched it when i was ill which was probably not a great idea but also because i binged it it kind of had quite a draining effect on me afterwards and i did feel like it was quite you know it's a difficult thing to take in so if you can avoid binging it it might be better to pace yourself slightly but it is really great highly recommended yeah definitely 
On to a couple of film recaps and reviews from us. So uh, it's kind of interesting contrast, or contrast, an interesting partner alongside unbelievable two pieces of media centering on women and based on true stories um, about women. So we went and saw Hustlers last week. We did. Finally, we've been looking forward to seeing this for a while. So Hustlers is an American crime drama written and directed by Loren Scafaria, who, uh, amongst other things... Uh, directed Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. And it's based on a New York Magazine article titled The Hustlers at Scores by Jessica Pressler uh, back in 2015. So the film stars uh, Constance Wu, Jennifer Lopez, of course, Julia Stiles, Kiki Palmer, Lily Reinhart, Lizzo and Cardi B. So quite the cast. I think that's what we were most stoked on i can't believe you haven't mentioned g easy oh my god sorry yes and g easy look i'm I'm focused on on the women mostly okay so a quick premise recap for you working as a stripper to make ends meet destiny's life uh, and that's constance Wu, changes forever when she becomes friends with ramona played by jennifer lopez who is the club's top money earner ramona soon shows destiny how to finagle her way you can tell i got this off wikipedia (laughs) finagle 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 her way around the wealthy wall street clientele who frequent the club but when the 2008 economic collapse cuts into their profits the girls and two other dancers devise a daring scheme to take their lives back we were looking forward to this film a lot i think the trailer was great we were very excited what a fucking cast and especially j-lo back you know, hopefully at her best. I think we were both going hoping for something excellent. Um, what did you think of the film? I really liked it. Oh my God, I enjoyed it so much. And it was I'd, lovely. I was really worried because, so it came out um, the week that you were on holiday. So I mm. went on holiday and then you went on holiday the week after. Truly we did. And so we'd had to sort of wait till we were both back and functional to go and see it. And I'd been so, in that, in that interim period, I'd seen so much good positive stuff about it that Mm. I was a little bit worried that it would be one of those instances where I'd go to the cinema and I'd be like oh it's fine but it's definitely not as good as everyone makes out to be but Mm -hmm. I just had such a good time it's a great it's a very absorbing film I'd say like very absorbing just out of the gate it's just the characters felt really well rounded Mm -hmm. I just completely bought into the relationship between Ramona and Destiny yeah definitely J-Lo is like fucking phenomenal Mm -hmm. like I know she hasn't like much like Brad Pitt actually she hasn't gone anywhere she's been constant you know for the last 25 years Mm -hmm. like she's been at it but in this she's just you I was sold on her as Ramona excellent excellent performance I feel like this is her best performance for quite a while I think she's had quite a few films that have had quite a muted response from sort of critics and viewers and this is her like really showing off what she can do and yeah it just it really worked I think the moment for me where I completely bought into it is there's a very very and I'd I'd heard about this in advance because for me it was truly just like I couldn't believe it was happening. So there's a scene where she dances to a Criminal Fucking by hell. Fiona Apple, which is Woo! like, Fiona Apple is like God tier for me anyway. And that song is just obviously a classic. And the fact that there was J-Lo doing this like full routine in the strip club. You could see the strength it. in her body as well. You could see the muscles at work. It is wild. It's crazy to me that this body, I mean, 
I think there's been quite a few interesting pieces that have talked about hustlers, that have talked about JLo and, and where this sits in her career now. I mean, she's 50 years old, which is bananas to me. Completely bananas. And it's almost like this very interesting way of her reclaiming her body that mm-hmm. has been so talked about over the years. You know, like constantly. My favourite piece of JLo trivia, which I told Thomas and he had no idea, so mm-hmm. this is why I like busting it out, is that you know that Google Image Search was invented for JLo. Really? Because when she wore the... Um, oh, you, the, the... Not Versace. But it's Versace, isn't it? I think it is. The green Versace. Yeah. Yeah. When she wore the green Versace dress. Yeah. So many people went on the internet, as it was then, to try and find a picture of it, that the team at Google... No. Because people, J-Lo. people were having to click on different links, and then when they weren't finding what they wanted to, and Google realised this is a great opportunity for us to have images where people could look and immediately find that is one. Mad. Isn't that crazy? I hope but, she's getting like I don't know some royalties for that. That is wild. Isn't that wild? But but she's someone who her body is mm-hmm. so much part of who her celebrity almost mm-hmm. and it is it's this, like body first everything after yeah really, and it's this very it? interesting reclaiming of it that she knows mm. that people think about her body and, mm-hmm. and are so intrigued by her body that she's kind of just using it to her advantage mm-hmm. and it's just like i was so when that that particular scene happened i was like right i'm in i this film totally is in. just and i yeah i just really enjoyed it i think it's a very interesting look at friendship more than it yeah, is an indictment think, of of like the financial crisis yeah it's the female friendship thing is the bit that sticks out isn't it it's kind of this initially sounds like a lazy comparison but i wanted to say a, it you you get a little bit of magic mike in it not because it's about strippers but the theme the the male friendship aspect of that kind of yeah. job and you get that with this as well. well and it's the sort of friendship that's missing from the kind of crime capers of like oceans eight mm-hmm. you get you get a lot more from this yeah i mean i think that magic mike comparison especially with the first magic mike where there yeah, is that scheme is the first one. underneath where mm. the kind of the making of the money and it is mm. an interesting comparison but actually i do think that you know when we were talking about oceans eight previously mm. and and i enjoyed oceans eight it was mm. a fun time yeah. but there was something about it that i was like i kind of wanted more from the, it the characters i think by themselves as characters are great but the you know the the chemistry you don't get the sense of friendship between them in the same way and this this film really shows i mean paints female friendship in an excellent light but also you know the kind of mutual support between the girls in that area of work and the way that there's no like cattiness or rivalry and when it says a lot about sort of i think the way you know expectations are formed when destiny and ramona first meet i almost respect expected to ramona to be quite protective of like her insider knowledge you know mm-hmm. destiny's saying like can you teach me everything yeah. and i was almost expecting her to be like uh no you're not stealing my stuff do you know what i mean or being more manipulative yeah completely. Um, and i know there is you know an element of this film which is about ramona sort of uh, loosely i'm using the term grooming very loosely you know so that she can enter into this scheme with her but i also felt like those two women do ultimate really care for each other and give each other a lot and I never got the sense that they didn't yeah, care for com- each other. Completely. So the, it kind of has a back and forth narrative, doesn't it? Yeah. With actually the crimes themselves happening and then Constance Wu's character, Destiny, is being interviewed by Julia Stiles, who's kind of the Jessica Pressler stand-in, mm-hmm. who's the person who's writing the article. And it's the fact that like, even after all of this, after they've gone through the legal kind of goings-on with it mm. um destiny is so keen to know about like, well, what's ramona doing you know mm. and then at the end when you do see, finally kind of see ramona in her kind of 2015 yeah 14 15 guys you know you can see actually like she really did destiny meant a lot to her and i think that like friendships 
it is above and beyond anything else that is in you know regardless of whether you think about the ethics of the crimes whether mm-hmm. you think about the impact that the wall street crash in yeah. 2008 had on businesses like strip clubs mm. and just generally across the board you know yeah. what do you think about what bankers were doing yeah, yeah. was sound or anything mm. like that i did think it was interesting that they brought that in though um oh yeah because i think something that, that i wouldn't necessarily think about properly. no i mean in that instance actually when all of that side of things was happening mm. it did remind me of kind of the adam mckay yeah. films like the big short mm-hmm. um, which i really enjoy and vice which again mm. we talked about that kind of real world implication mm. of what people like that are doing mm. but i just oh, it was just such a fun time yeah i had such a great time i think yeah as you say i mean constance Wu is almost as mesmerizing as jayla you know her performance is Wonderful. It's really exciting to see Cardi B and Lizzo. Um, brief but good. Brief but great. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, there were a couple of things I wasn't like entirely sure about. So, as you mentioned, you know, the film is framed as an interview between Julia Stiles and Destiny because it's based on a real interview. So I guess they've, you know, they've used that structure um, to replicate the article that came out, which has done well, but felt a little bit jarring to me because they don't introduce the way it's structured. They don't introduce like Julia and Destiny at the beginning. It's like no, it's halfway strange, through or like a third of the way through, you're suddenly jolted out and it's like, here's a journalist and this woman telling her story. And I found that a little bit jarring sometimes I that think you it, move between the two. Yeah, I think it's interesting as a narrative structure. I think that it, um, I understand why they did it. Mm. But also I think if you went into it and didn't actually know that it was based because for me I knew that it was based on this article so yeah. when that happened I was like oh okay that's supposed to be like sure. the Jessica Pressler but if, yeah but it makes most, sense when yeah, you know absolutely but if you didn't I, that I think it would you'd right, be like what the fuck out. is she what like yeah. where are we and why what time frame are we in and yeah. it, you know I think it's a bit jarring it wasn't done as smoothly as it could have been mm-hmm. I think um, and also it's not really a criticism from me per se but I can anticipate or could anticipate that the ending and the way that the the scheme that they get into with taking advantage of these bankers and these men, the way the film is marketed, like in the trailer, and the way that we expect some of these films, like Ocean's 8 to go, you know, it reaches some sort of climatic critical point. And you don't quite have that in the same way with this. I think it is slightly more muted in the way that you know you don't have a really truly awful thing go wrong at the end, and it all you know someone doesn't die, and then it all comes to. And I think maybe some more. I don't know, some viewers might have expected it to follow that structure a bit more. Or yeah. I think it is a slightly more slightly more muted film in that respect, if you get what I mean. Like what they go you know, what they do to these men is, you know, bad and we can see that, but it doesn't it doesn't follow the usual structure, I think, that you would expect of that kind of film or a film that is similar yeah. to that. Do yeah, you know I what do, I mean? I do get what you mean. I think for me that perhaps is why it is more about the friendship more yeah. than anything. And it's why I liked it. Yeah. I think that's definitely why I, I liked it because actually it didn't foreground the act of what happened. That yeah. wasn't really the crime's the key. not really the that's not the real point. But I think if you're collecting it with the Oceans films or other things, you might expect, I think some viewers might expect the film to go that way and might be slightly, not disappointed, but it just might not meet their expectations in that way that there's not some big dramatic climax. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, definitely. So quite the contrast to the kind of 2008 loud brashness of Hustlers. On strip clubs too. Space. Um, (laughs) On Sunday, we went to see Ad Astra. 
I personally had been looking forward to this a great deal. Mm-hmm. I think that you can agree as well. Um, well, yes, I think so. So it's uh, directed, produced and co-written by James Gray, who did uh, The Lost City of Zed, We Own the Night and The Immigrant, as well as um, Ethan Gross, who worked on the script for Fringe. He was a showrunner mm, on Fringe, a TV show I've probably seen one episode of. I saw a couple of seasons of Fringe. Of course I did. But there you go. So it stars Brad Pitt, Tommy Lee Jones, Ruth Negger, Liv Tyler and Donald Sutherland. And it uh, follows an astronaut who goes goes into space in search of his lost father whose experiment threatens the solar system. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival in August and was released on the September of the 20th. Um, its release date, interestingly, actually had been bumped a number of times. It was scheduled for the, uh, January the 11th of this year and oh, then it was blimey. pushed to May 24th before ending up in September. I think wow. this is to do with the Disney Fox merger. Okay. And it's been a little bit of a victim of that. Filming itself had taken place in August 2017 and it had a lot of reshoots following some poor test screenings. Um, which pushed the budget from 18 to 100 million dollars ouch the score is by max richter and i found this interesting actually um the Go film on, has initially me. been conceived with the idea that joaquin phoenix would star as it as he he's oh. a long-time collaborator of james gray there's a little quote here actually um that comes from a dazed article that says as Ad astra was written in 2011 presumably phoenix was intended for the role of roy um joaquin had gotten into paul thomas anderson's orbit gray laughs i always felt like paul of course and i mean this in a sporting way took joaquin which is okay <laughs> paul's great he stole him i mentioned this because my immediate feeling when i saw this film is i don't think that for me personally would have had as much of an impact as it if it had starred Joaquin Phoenix. No, I think it would have felt very differently. I think there's a lot that links Brad Pitt to this film and it is a film that feels like it should have Brad Pitt in it. Yeah, so that that for me is just something I wanted to sort of like lay out there just immediately. Um, yeah. So this film really knocked me for six in a way that I didn't necessarily anticipate. Mm. I think that, so we've just talked about Hustlers and when we were kind of weighing up stuff we wanted to see recently, we pumped to go and see Hustlers first because we were both feeling not 100%. Wasn't feeling great. And also I thought it was going to disappear from the cinema. Yeah, quicker, so we thought honest. we'd go and see Hustlers and on the off chance that it would probably be a nice uplifting lift. An uplifting lift. Uplifting lift, which it was. And mostly because as well, we knew that Ad Astra had the likelihood of just being quite sad and maybe making us think about it. It was going to be a sad film. Um, and yeah, so like I said, it really did knock me for six. Um, what did you think about it just initially? I really enjoyed it. it I think it met my expectations. I, my expectations were pretty high based on... The trailer, firstly, which looked beautiful Mm -hmm. and seemed like... It just seemed like something I was going to be really interested in. And also there had been... You know, I'd seen snippets of responses and reviews online, as always. You know, it comes on Twitter first. And the response had been so resoundingly positive, bar maybe one sort of fairly muted response, um, that I kind of knew that I was really going to love it. You know, understandably, it's drawing comparisons to kind of Heart of Darkness, and I know we discussed that. And also, you know, actually, it makes sense that this film is coming from James Gray, who did Lost City of Z. Well, it really, yeah, it, it feels, yeah, like very familiar ground in some respects. I've read a couple of interviews now, um, having seen it um, with James Gray specifically, and he mentions Conrad as kind of being mm. an inspiration. He me- mentions Heart of Darkness, and then obviously has made reference to Apocalypse Now on the flip mm-hmm. side of that as well, about kind of talking about this sort of man doing voyage yeah it's a man journeying into the unknown to kind of find himself isn't it and we've just we've just changed we've just transplanted the jungle to space but it you know brad pitt is perfect for this film gives a very sort of stoic understated performance 
as Roy McBride. It's, you know, a man who's followed in the footsteps of his father and pursued adventure into the unknown at the cost, perhaps, of his his personal life. And the article that we were talking about, the GQ article, was interesting because you can see you can see some of the parallels into Brad Pitt's own life yeah. as well. And it's interesting that it comes the same year as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because I think that both of those films talk about Brad Pitt maybe in ways that are very different to each other. But I could definitely see why he'd read this script and think that he had something to give to this. It's really interesting when you think about what was happening in Brad Pitt's personal life at mm-hmm. the time that this was filmed as well. So it comes immediately in the aftermath of, of the sort of end of his relationship with Angelina mm. Jolie. And it's a lot about relationships and loneliness and absence and loss and the burden of inherited burden of yeah parents you know following in your parents footsteps and actually having to live up to that and especially if they're an absent parent Mm. and kind of has a lot it's big rumination on human existence you know whether we're alone in the world and what that means on a macro micro level all those space things all the things that come with space that we're used to yeah it's so true though it's so true it's a film that really does take its time which i expected i think you know, we spend a lot of time gazing at the planets and at the solar system. We spend a lot of time focusing on close shots of people's facial movements. Yet there are some really edge of the seat moments that really freaked me out. I mean, I'm freaked out by space anyway. Yeah, I mean, but, I mean it opens with a scene that had me like really panicking for what was going to happen. It's got some real and <laughs> moments think, of tension. I think that's why those moments are particularly tense and do have an impact because comparatively to the rest of the film, which is quite sombre and subtle and quiet and does make you... get gets quite philosophical when it thinks about these big themes, as mm. a lot of space movies have a tendency to do, that the sure. reason those kind of action-y bits, I suppose, um, have such a punch is because they are sort of really juxtaposed i mean it just looks brilliant as well like it It is i mean the set pieces are incredible and the cinematography is obviously incredible like it looks it's just beautiful and it contemplates everything and it gives you time to soak everything in yeah it's just it's a gorgeous film it's just a film that i think that i i want to go back and see it immediately because Mm. i want to spend time in it i think that for me, I came away and it just was making me think about things in such depth. I mean, mm. I think that space movies are often a really good platform in which to sort of test those ideas of things I was alluding to, like mm. that kind of not only our place in the world, but the uncertainty. It makes us feel so small. And yeah. whatever we do, you know, this is a point in time in the near future where, you know, we literally have the ability to, you know, organise Virgin Airways um, commercial flights to Mars and we can travel to Neptune and we're so advanced and yet we're still so tiny and we know nothing and i really liked that actually so it is set in the near future and it's nondescript with its actual specific year which Mm. i thought was very interesting i wasn't quite expecting that either i don't think i'd gathered from the trailer that it was set at a time in the future where you know these sorts of things would be possible and we'd have like i don't know greg's on the moon that sort of thing (laughs) right but at the same time actually i think that like it does that weird thing that space movies do where it's sort of like it's set in the future and everything's Mm. quite progressive because we're able to sort of freely travel about the universe but also it looks there are elements of it that kind of hark back to sort of Mm. a lot of the images of the actual space footage the actual kind of the um you know the uniforms Mm -hmm. and everything that is looks quite retro it's very evocative of like the 60s does feel like 
be watching a space odyssey yeah completely and and obviously like out of the gate it was reminding me not only the themes it tackles but the kind of visual touchstones that it utilizes Mm. were were reminding me of things like gravity and silent running and moon and sunshine and solaris Mm -hmm. in particular like i was just it it plays around a lot with those that imagery and i just Mm -hmm. i really enjoyed it and the score as well the score the 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 score is I mean, I was aware of the score. It was so good. I just, you know, I kept coming back to it. I kept thinking about it. There's one moment in particular, actually, which isn't isn't a Max Richter song. It's a Niels Fram mm-hmm. song. But there's this scene um, where I think it's when they're on Mars, actually, and they're in a buggy, and it's just oh like, my it's, word, oh, that it's whole just, it's just amazing. That whole aspect, yeah, it's just yeah, an amazing. And I just, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I like that space films give you room to think about kind of larger themes of mm. human existence because I think you're right it actually makes you question because you what we are so small we're so small God. and you know that's why I actually find space movies quite hard as well because it gives you that time yeah. but it's so daunting it's so terrifying I mean we were discussing afterwards like what's scarier like deep under the sea or space and I am terrified by what's at the bottom of the ocean but I would rather stay on earth and go into space I can't think of anything more I can't think of anything more terrifying and also anything that would make me feel more insignificant than being out there. That uncertainty makes me feel quite unwell. Yeah, <laughs> In a way that like, I, I both kind of like, but also absolutely hate. And I, I would be really interested to see what other people think of this, actually, because while I really, really enjoyed it and want to mm. go back and spend more time with it, um, I can understand why other people might find it a little bit of a slow burn and yeah. expect more from it. I mean, I'd, I'd sort of heard from someone at work had said that their friend had been to see it and found it quite slow and boring yeah. and maybe there was a bit of again you know our sort of our experience of previous space films they sort of expected maybe a more action-led sort of space romp which is completely understandable i also did you read mark kermode's review i haven't did you no. see it yeah that was interesting because that was the only review i saw that gave it like three stars rather than four or five that's um, interesting which is interesting and he i think his main problem was that he found uh some of the the narration the voiceover hokey and i found it it wasn't enough to make it an issue it's a little bit in places it's a bit hokey i can see that i i completely hear that my counterpoint to it mostly just because I've thought about it quite a lot is that I think it's supposed to mirror the way that um, Roy is continually having to do these psych evals yeah yeah to sort of make sure that he's okay to be traveling and doing all this work and I think that it's meant to sort of contrast that. yeah mm. because he is someone that has this very like you say very stoic mm. calm composed that like one of the big things for him is that like he can be having a very extreme situation but he's known for mm. his his BPM doesn't get above 80 like he's, much he's like very, Brad Pitt I imagine yeah, he's yeah. very calm and composed so when he's doing these psych evals that he has to pass he's almost gaming the system mm. because he knows he can kind of say like well I'm calm I'm, I'm you know, Fine. he knows exactly well. what to say I had no it? bad dreams yeah he knows exactly what needs to be said in order for him to go and do his job and yet I think that the voiceover is supposed to be his inner monologue which co- is contrasting against that mm. um, so for me though I understand how it, it kind of yeah. gets a little bit hokey it didn't bother me as much yeah, but I yeah. understand why I, I mean, think I the think... strength of the performances and the rest of the film make the hokiness fairly insignificant but I was slightly struck by it especially at the beginning yeah. like right at the beginning I think it it stuck out to me more and then as you say I think it probably does make a bit more sense as the film goes on but I I can see that as a valid 
yeah, problem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think just finally as well, I, I, I've thought a lot about Brad Pitt recently. I've thought a lot about Brad Pitt <laughs> recently too. We discussed, I'm thinking about what his career bests are and what my favourite performances are. And I think that this for me is really a career high because I think that it, it captures him at a very specific time in his life where he is someone who's quite introspective and, mm. and we don't know a huge amount. He's got the saddest eyes. He has. And, and I think that it's, it's for me anyway, when I was watching this, it was really hard for me to disconnect where he was at that particular yeah. time. Yeah. That's why it's so interesting. And his performance, because yeah. there are some scenes where he's getting really emotive and, and the camera is just focusing on mm. him and it doesn't shy away from just showing you his emotion. And it's really hard to it not think It does feel that... like he's he, he could just not even be acting here. Like it's effortless. And that the idea of what might have been bubbling just under the surface when he was performing. And you don't really see that from him very often no. these days anymore. And I think that the, the film really uses that to its advantage and I think it's worth seeing for that alone really just mm. in terms of it's a real performance and I, I we were talking about awards a moment ago and I think that it'll be very interesting to see whether he gets any award recognition for this mm. or whether it actually goes primarily to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. My preference mm-hmm. of those two performances from this year for me was Ad Astra. I think, I think this is a stat I think this is more of a standout performance for him definitely because he carries pretty much all of it himself as well. Like so much of the film is focused on him quite literally yeah. focused on his face and not much else. He carries the whole thing. It's just I mean I I really was And it flew by. Away. 2 yeah. hours flew by as well. It was it was quite something. It's definitely something that I hope lots of people go and see. Yeah, let us know if you see it because I um, would be really interested to see um how other people find it. Um lots of music has happened over the summer. Loads but, of music. Uh one thing in particular it would be absolutely remiss of us to not talk about. I think Vaughn would kill us. I think Vaughn in particular would feel like it was a personal attack against her was the release of the new Taylor Swift record Lover. Um it's a seventh studio album released on the 23rd of August. It was and preceded by singles Me You Need to Calm Down plus Lover and The Archer. 18 songs. It was a number of producers worked on the project, but for me most notable was obvious frequent collaborator Jack Antonoff. Mm. Um Taylor's described the album as a love letter to love and it's been much discussed in the context of her relationship with actor Joe Alwyn um, I mentioned the Laura Snape Guardian profile mm. earlier and it's definitely worth people seeking that out we will link to it because I think it's a really nice companion yeah. piece to this particular record um, What's your what was your feeling on it? Um, I mean I don't have a very long investment in Taylor Swift it has to be said especially you know in light of Vaughn and you and I think you guys have been listening to her a lot longer it's only been the last few records really that I've engaged with I did really enjoy this record I think it's a really nice record it's a lovely summer record you mentioned Jack Antonoff and that's something that really stood out for me I think it has real Jack Antonoff vibes you can completely tell he was involved but in in a very very good way it's and I gather and it sounds like it's a real return to something that people were sort of looking for from her after reputation it felt like people enjoyed reputation but there was something that they wanted her to get back to and that reputation very much felt quite performative and quite and there was an act there and an acting out and that this was getting back to something that was a bit more I don't know personal and um it's a very it's a very personal record for me for me it's a real return to form I think we actually might have talked about 
um, reputation on the podcast. I think we did um, many moons ago, and I I have now since gone back to it, and I think there are some good songs on it, and I was quite critical of it at the time, just because it was so it was such polar. Oh. It's so polar opposite, isn't it? And I a lot of what I enjoyed about that record was mostly wrapped in the time that I spent with Von, and that record made me think about my time with her which is why I felt quite positively towards it yeah but I think when you contrast that record with this record this record is a lot stronger yeah definitely and it's an interesting release date for her as well because she's normally an end of the year release person Mm. I think see she saw September October November ish time usually Mm. for Taylor so it's slightly earlier I mean the some standout tracks for me were Cruel Summer I Forgot You Mm. Existed Paper Rings Miss Americana The Archer Death by a Thousand Cuts and It's Nice to Have a Friend which Mm. sounds like the um, Big Little Lies theme tune if you think yeah much yeah Um, london boy which has caused much controversy has definitely grown on me yeah i don't think i was that fussed by london boy initially apart from obviously everyone just freaking out about all of the potential easter eggs it's massively embarrassing but it's also i mean i my i think i I keep talking about with Vaughn is i absolutely refuse to believe that anyone would have such a visceral reaction to joel alwyn that they Mm -hmm. would write this entire record absolutely fine i mean my this can't be about joel alwyn it's joel alwyn he's I've already forgotten what he looks like. Right. I mean, I, I think this record for me s- sits very nicely alongside Red and 1989, which mm-hmm. are my two favourite Taylor records. And I was just really, I was really impressed. My expectations for this had been so low because I did not enjoy those singles at all. They mm. were just slightly cringe-inducing and I didn't, didn't understand Ta- why I mean, they were happening. There's, there's always this little bit with Taylor Swift, isn't there? I mean, I know, obviously, this is not is not really going to be his thing ever, but Wes... I know that Wes appreciates, you know, Harry Styles, various artists, and he appreciates why I listen to them. He doesn't get Taylor Swift, and he always just says, like, I just find it cringy. Like, she's got some cringy aspects about her. She doesn't always get it, you know. She's not the cool girl, is she? No, she doesn't always make good single choices. So that's why I was quite pleased that this album is just full of the absolute bops, really. Mm. And I'm, I'm just, yeah, I was just really, really impressed. And I've just listened to it so much. It's a nice, like, end of summer jam and i'm just i think that taylor's getting older she's growing up she's understanding how embarrassing she is on some (laughs) we're all understanding it it's fine just accept that you're embarrassing and own it two other very brief things on the podcast front worth mentioning before we move into our main topic um one i just wanted to shout out that thursday kit is back it found a home on slate and that the first episode was about dan levy i haven't listened to it yet my god is it good yes it's just it's just very exciting to me that other people know and understand how smoking hot dan levy is on all levels he's just amazing outrageous um so shout out to them definitely and also um this is a nice segue into our main topic friends of ours have launched uh, the constant reader podcast which is a stephen king focused podcast focusing on stephen king's books in chronological order uh, the first episode came out uh, the other week uh, talking about Carrie with Mark Yankovic. Um, it's a really, really great podcast. It's really well produced. It's really interesting. If you're into Stephen King at all, please give it a listen. It's highly recommended. And I may or may not be making an appearance, which is very nice. I had a great time talking about Salem's Lot on that podcast. Um, and Richard was a fantastic host. And I'm really looking forward to listening back to it and hearing my own weird, embarrassing voice. But it's it's highly recommended. 
On to our little focus chat of the episode, and it is like my absolute dream. It's a Steph McKenna special. A Steph McKenna special. Especially for October. Um, Spoops. The spoopiest month. I fucking hate spoopy. (laughs) I don't even know why. I can't even jokingly say it. It makes me feel sick. Um, We're going to talk about It Chapter 2, which came out early last month. It's been a while. It's been a hot minute. But we're also going to talk a little bit about Stephen King. Now, we won't go too heavily into it because, A... You're not like a Stephen King reader. Absolutely not. Um, no. And you have, you've watched some Stephen King adaptations. So that's going to be mainly our focus. And for anyone who's not heavily invested in Stephen King, I think you can still get by on this. It is fine. Don't worry. I've managed to wing my homework, so we'll all be fine. April's been winging it with me. I almost said wang. It's been, April's been wanging it with me for ages. So um, you'll be fine. Uh, let's talk about it. Chapter two first. The sequel to 2017's It, it was released on the 6th of September and, of course, based on the book by Stephen King himself. The film is directed by Andy Muschietti, who was also the director of Mama, which I don't know if you ever saw Mama. I don't think Um, I did, no. And also It. And it's based on the screenplay by Gary Doberman, which was one of my initial hesitations because he has been involved in screenplays for Annabelle, Annabelle Creation and The Nun Great. Uh, the first It film was the highest grossing horror film of all time. Isn't that uh, mad? Mad. Absolute madness. Biggest horror film of all time. It was also directed by Andy Muschietti, but it was it used a screenplay um, by Chase Palmer, Carrie Fukunaga and Gary Doberman. Um, and it was Fukunaga's screenplay. I think Fukunaga basically wrote a screenplay that wasn't entirely used. It was adapted for the final film. And it was the strengths of that original script that sort of really carried this film through from what I gather because I haven't read the script but with this film we obviously lost Fukunaga we didn't have that aspect and it was just Gary Doberman which is why some people were feeling a little bit worried a bit hesitant about what part two would involve a quick synopsis for anyone who needs it defeated by members of the losers club the evil clown Pennywise returns 27 years later to terrorize the town of Derry Maine once again Now adults, the childhood friends have long since gone their separate ways, but when people start disappearing, Mike Hanlon calls the others home for one final stand. Damaged by scars from the past, the United Losers must conquer their deepest fears to destroy the shape-shifting Pennywise, now more powerful than ever. So we see a return of the young losers, Jaden Martell, Sophia Lillis, Finn Wolfhard, Chosen Jacobs, Jeremy Ray Taylor, Jack Dylan Grazer and Wyatt Olaf, and also Bill Skarsgård, of course, who returns as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. And this time we're introduced to the adult losers who are Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, Bill Hader, Isaiah Mustafa, Jay Ryan, James Ranson and Andy Bean. So as I said, going into this, I think we're probably both wary. I had that kind of just some of that knowledge from the first It film, knowing that some of the strongest points of that first half uh, came from this original screenplay. And by original, I don't mean original, I mean first. But I was also quite nervous about the decision, which I think I've probably mentioned before, to split the child and the adult scenes of the book into two films um, and whether that would work because of having read the book before and knowing that they are very much intertwined in the book and that actually most of the story takes place with the children. So whether they could fill a whole three hours just with some adults seemed a bit far 
far-fetched um, and also just my knowledge of some of the subject matter which we'll cover which is in the book which is a bit batshit those were the they were the coke years of Stephen King let's put it that way and also just concerns over whether the casting would be right because I think we both really enjoyed the young losers from the first film um, what were you expecting were you expecting anything do you want my really honest answer about how I felt going into this yeah so I've got a real beef with when films are longer than they need to be April really hates anything that's a lot longer than two hours. I have really strong feelings about how it should be illegal for films to have more than a two-hour runtime. I think anyone who's listened to more than one episode of this podcast just, will know that. And this, how how long was it? Two and a half two, hours? No, two 40. hours and 45 minutes, yes. Why? I mean, I, that that's was crazy my, long. That was my immediate feeling, was why does a film like this need to be that long? I'm not adverse to long films. I'm just a bit of a snob about who has directs them and what they're involved. Just a total fucking snob. Paul Thomas Anderson can release a seven-hour film and I will be there opening day because that's that's the type of human oh, I Oh, I see, you snob. No. I'm just very choosy with it because I just think that sometimes things don't need to be as long. And so that was my first feeling going into it was I'm a bit stressed about how long this is going to be. And I do think that it didn't need to be as long as Mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. That said, I did enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty big fucking book. It's a you know completely and i think knowing the source material is quite lengthy i do understand why they needed to flex with it i was apprehensive as well going in because i think i'd sort of seen a lot of up and down reviews oh yeah some were quite glowing and then some were actually not very good so i was a bit worried that not only was it going to be a really long film but it would be a really long bad film which is that's the worst kind of film (laughs) i didn't it is having endured midsummer this summer I didn't yeah, really want... Yeah, guys, another... that was a pants film. Stop telling us it was good. <laughs> I didn't want another situation where I was having to sit for nearly three hours and not have a nice time. But I was pleasantly surprised. I think that the adult casting is brilliant. I do think that Bill Hader carries this film personally. Yes. Because I think that he does a lot of work with kind of contrasting this kind of like the childhood trauma and, and dealing with things in, in with comedy and, and vice versa. I like Jessica Chastain a lot and I think that she was very good as adult Beverly. I think they hit all of the adults like, you know, as the young losers pretty perfectly, actually. It was a great casting. It was. And, and I was initially quite apprehensive just because, especially with like James McAvoy, I think James McAvoy can be hit and miss. I really wasn't sure. Yeah, um, definitely. And, and I, I think, was pleasantly surprised. I think you're right, but because we did love the young losers, I think I was a bit apprehensive that actually all of the good work they'd done as setting up a little dynamic was going to be undone by the grown-ups. And I mean, I'm someone that thinks James, James Ransone is is so underrated mm-hmm. i love him in the wire he's in generation kill with your boy alexander skarsgård lovely i just think he's great and i mm-hmm. think he was so brilliant as eddie absolutely yeah i think the first film it you know it did well for a huge blockbuster horror and i think it was pretty good considering it was a huge blockbuster horror but i think it really hit the best notes with the young losers yeah. and as you say i was also worried that they would undo all of that good work with some a you know poor casting or b they just wouldn't have a good dynamic together and i think when you get the adult losers together in the chinese restaurant for the first time and they're kind of laughing and joking and then you know the fallout ensues that's when i 
thought actually this is great casting with a group that works really well together and I think that's one of my criticisms actually is I liked the back and forth narrative between mm. um, showing what happened to the Losers Club after that summer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and how kind of what happened to them how it affected them going forward and how they'd sort of grown apart and things like that mm. and I liked that how that was contrasted with them as adults but for me the where it does sort of fall by the wayside ever so slightly is when you essentially bring all these people together and mm-hmm. they're reunited and they're kind of becoming more familiar with mm. remembering what's mm. happened to them and then they're immediately yanked apart again because they yeah. have to go on this little bit of a mission and I liked all those individual performances mm-hmm. but for me where it worked best is when they were together yeah I do think the film has got lots of kind of interesting things to a point to say about the burden of childhood yeah. trauma um it kind of you know, like I just said, it kind of it interestingly manifests itself in how once they're all away from Derry, they kind of forget what's happened mm-hmm, to them. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from Mike, because he's been living he's there been the entire time, the trauma. And, and and he's been very much faced with it at all times. And I think that's that as a concept is very interesting. Obviously, it's really important to understand that I come at this from a completely mm. different perspective to you, and I have no knowledge. I think that's interesting though, because it helps. You know, it, it it's interesting to have a point of view where you don't have you're not coming from anything and you're just taking this film on face value based on the strengths or weaknesses of the actual film completely all my understanding of what happens in the book has basically come from you telling me various things and and our discussion last time Mm. about chapter one Mm. and sort of the things that you uh liked and didn't like about how that was adapted i mean i like the i think the thing that really knocked me for six was the ending with where they read stanley's letter and the fact that that actually kind of that is like a really very physical manifestation Mm -hmm. about what can happen when you've got unresolved childhood trauma Mm -hmm. and actually Mm -hmm. the impact that that has and you know Stanley unfortunately takes himself out of the equation and so that really like as an afterthought I that really kicked me in the guts Mm -hmm. and I know that that was something that we discussed afterwards and how about actually the film does look at friendship in a sort of way and how you know traumatic events can bring you together Mm -hmm. or push you apart Mm. and that was always the strongest aspects of the book and of the adaptations that there have been is if you don't get those you had to get the friendships right in these adaptations because that is the part of the book that really sticks in everyone's minds and that's why it's such an important book to people. Completely. And I think that nostalgic element is something we talked about when we mm. talked about the first part of the film is that it taps into that kind of Stand By Me-esque aesthetic oh, yeah. of, of friends coming together for an extended period of time and going through a thing that then impacts their lives going forward. And I mean, Pennywise the Clown now is at a point where I'm not as unsettled by Mm -hmm. him as I was. We've been certainly overexposed, I would say, in lots of ways. I think that's been a little bit like... um, I feel like that's where the the blockbuster element or the like really... I don't know what it is because I'm using blockbuster as some sort of derogative term there, which isn't fair, but I don't know. There's something about just in in the same vein as like the nun and some of those other yeah, films yeah, like yeah. overexposure to what's supposed to be creepy just really lessens the effect doesn't it it's interesting actually we'll come on to this when we talk wider about mm. kind of uh stephen king adaptations but i th- i know that for me a huge part of why i find clowns so unsettling is because of a time when I was a kid where I either saw the trailer for the Tim Curry mm-hmm. it or saw a bit of it on television it or something and it, re- it really 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 set the seed for me mm. to have this real big aversion to clowns mm. so for, for me as a person who has that mm. kind of vague phobia I do feel a little bit like now where Pennywise is concerned mm. I've had exposure therapy and actually like, yeah, I just find yeah. it like 
bit hokey. Not yeah. in, not in a in a in necessarily negative way, but it's just like the the impact of him is slightly lessened. Yeah, for I me. think so. I think the moments where the film actually focuses in on Bill Skarsgård's performance, such as you've got that extended sequence with the young girl at the baseball oh, game. That, I mean, that's and you know you spend a lot of time with you know, and that is a part of the film where Bill gets to sort of, you know, gets to perform, like really perform. Um, and that is a really memorable, unsettling part. And it's those those moments where you sort of centre in on the performance, I think are really unsettling. It's all of the other stuff, the, you know, being in the background, floating around, being a presence, laughing, waving, that sort of stuff is kind of the, that is the overexposure, as you say. Yeah, and I think that's why I liked the, the first film as well, is that mm. those periods in the film where he is given the room to flex like mm. the, right at the beginning of chapter one where you know Georgie first goes yeah. missing like that entire sequence is awful yeah. like in the sense that there's just such dread mm. and like you know this isn't going to pan out mm. in a positive way and you you have the very similar experience in in chapter two with the girl under the bleachers where mm. actually mm. You, you kind of see her there and he's talking to her and you just think like oh this is not going to pan out well and a lot it? of it is in facial expression yeah and again you know centering in on those those performances yeah i really agree with you on a lot of that i think overall it was better than i expected Completely. um because i was quite nervous going in as with the first film I think its heart is in the right place the casting really pulls it together Um, and if you don't like the casting or don't think the casting works then understandably I don't think you will like the film having knowledge of the book there are some very difficult aspects of the book that I just couldn't imagine how they were ever going to handle those aspects of the book. You know, we had the the infamous uh, sex scene from uh, the, the child aspect of the book, which was could have been in the first film that wasn't featured. Um, and in this half of the book, I was anticipating, you know, the really tricky ritual chud, which is alluded to, um, use of the deadlights, which is alluded to, and kind of its true form. And in the book, it obviously manifests as a clown, amongst other things, but it is... The deadlights are almost like it in its true form and it's it's beyond what we can comprehend, basically. Sure. How do you how are you gonna show in a film something that is beyond comprehension? In the init- in the early film, the Tim Curry film, they had it as a giant spider, and I think that's where most people's experience of the fir- the T V series fell flat because it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Like how do you how are you going to portray the un- unknowable, the yeah. unbelievable, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the unseeable? And also the big fat cosmic turtle. Like, what are you going to do with that? I think that was my favourite thing that I gl- gleaned from you. Did you lean across and tell me this during the I film? I think I might have maybe, maybe mentioned Maturin. And I was like, turtle. wait, what? Yeah, so for those that don't know, uh, some of the final scenes in the book with the adults fighting Pennywise the Clown culminate in, I believe, Bill going on some sort of cosmic journey with a giant turtle um, (laughs) that kind of represents the good of the world versus the bad. And there's something about the world being vomited up by the turtle. I don't know. Anyway, it gets all very... Mad what happens when you write a book coffee Someone was on drugs. And, you know, the ritual chud and all of that is... They're difficult aspects that would translate to film quite badly I think if you try to Mm. uh, handle them all they are just unfilmable in some respects I think and they would draw a lot of laughter I'm glad that they alluded to some of the things so you've got some slight allusions to the deadlights with the floating orbs in the sky and they did mention the ritual chud um, although it took a slightly different form and I think they did 
the right thing by not including those things properly because I think it it would have been laughable. I think from an outside perspective, all the kind of the ritual stuff and the kind of, you know, having to go on a voyage to find this these elements to sort of use in this ritual, mm. that that made sense from an outside mm. perspective. Um, I think the only thing where that is concerned for me is that subsequently the ending just felt... A bit yeah. like flat yeah I where think essentially did, like yeah. the ritual doesn't work or does mm-hmm. work but doesn't work properly and then mm-hmm. they essentially just have to be mean to it and then he just yeah they've kind of invented a way out of that really because they haven't used what was in the book um and also the search for the artifacts i mean that's not something that happens in the book in the no. same way so again i feel like they've had to pad out this second film with you know, what are we going to do with these characters? And they're going to have to go off on their own missions to collect things so that we can have their individual recollections, you know. And so all of that has been fabricated in order to carry this film. And I think that's where my issue with it being too long is, is that, yeah. like, that just felt like padding for me. Like, yeah. I enjoyed elements of it because it was of a little bit of an insight into those characters and, mm. and the contrast of where they're at as adults and what happened to them as children. Mm. But at the same time, it's like this could all have been condensed into a much Yeah, from a narrative sort of structural point of view, it makes sense. But there, it is very repetitive. And we've already had this before, the kind of centering on and each individual character. So yeah, it is very repetitive. And I think that's what a lot of people took issue, main issue with. There are some nice homages to the book and to the miniseries. You get a lot of spider-like entities throughout the whole thing, which um, is obviously an allusion to the TV series. Um, you've got this running joke about the ending of the book being disliked, which is... It's very self-aware. Um, yeah, you know, Stephen King, famously, people either don't like the ending of his books or stand by me in particular. People didn't like the ending of the book. Um, there's a really nice cameo from Stephen King, though, which is one of his best cameos. He's a man who likes to be in these things. Yeah. Um, so whether he's involved in any other way um, doesn't really matter. He likes to be involved as a cameo. And I thought that was a nice cameo. I do like the self-awareness, like yeah. the fact that the narrative with Bill and, and mm-hmm. you know, he's a writer now, but people are always criticising how he can't end books, mm. which yeah. I think's you know, complete like shot at Stephen King yeah. who obviously probably fully knows it as well I mean my, yeah. my last feeling on this is that I've just written here in all capital letters Jack Scully from Neighbours grew up that's mad. jarring wasn't isn't it? it mad I completely forgot about that until we saw it um, well, I, I think I text you and I was like wait did we know that Jack Scully from Neighbours is in this film playing grown up Ben and you the were like was yes and you were like yeah did we not discuss this and I was like either we did and I've forgotten or I just wasn't really paying attention it's very weird there's a few people actually in this film that are kind of grown up versions of in particular this kind of the child actor who was Ben in the original TV series is one of the adult actors is, in the boardroom yeah. and things like that there are all these kind of you know child to grown up all these weird things going on I mean actually I thought it was alright because again I it was, was very quite good. Um, I really wasn't sure about him um, and it is always the the plot line with Ben's loss of weight and becoming quote-unquote hot is a total eye roll and that is in the book and it is something that's just it sort of became it was like funny the first sure. time I guess and then it, they kept mentioning it and I was like I mean yeah he got hot we know like, all right guys come on yeah that's just very you know it is what it is they've also a couple of other things that kind of didn't work completely for me we talked about the repetitive nature of the plot something that didn't sit right for with me from the first film is that i felt like they removed quite a lot of mike's storyline with regards to sort of 
um, racial, racial prejudice in the town mm-hmm. um, and, you know, Mike's experiences in particular. And also there is um, something that stuck really strongly in my mind in the book about the Black Spot, which is a nightclub which was mainly frequented by black soldiers, which is burnt down um, in the book. Mm-hmm. And it's a really harrowing sequence. And that was just completely removed. And probably because it's complicated to try and get into that, but... I very much felt in both of these films that that entire aspect was just completely sidestepped. It's like weirdly alluded to in the first film, isn't it? Because you have yeah. a bit of a flashback and then mm-hmm. there is one in this second film mm-hmm. as well. But They've I... got a mural of the black spot in one, in yeah, one scene. Or the other thing as well that I don't necessarily have an issue with, but I don't... Uh, well, I just think it's, it's an interesting thing that they decided to do mm-hmm. was the relationship between yeah. Eddie and... This is what I was coming um, to as well, Richie. Richie. Mm. and how there's kind of an underlying thing thing there that actually Richie might be queer and he maybe was in love with Eddie mm-hmm. and I mean some of the most harrowing scenes in the film are when unfortunately Eddie doesn't make it out of the kind of the yeah. final battle and you see yeah. Richie really, really having to tackle the fact that you mm-hmm. know he's he's lost his best friend mm-hmm. um, because they had such good because they, they had, had such an amazing relationship yeah. and the repertoire between as you say Bill Hader and James Ransom is like the standout relationship yeah. and, in the film. and it was just like a very interesting choice that I don't I I haven't, I haven't really sort of no, I thought about of... whether it works or not. I mean, another thing, actually, I think that that, that as a through line mm. is then obviously kind of subsequently you have to then link it with what happens at the beginning of the film. With Adrian Mellon, yeah. Yeah, with the Adrian mm-hmm. Mellon murder. And that in itself, that is in the book, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. And that was something that I had no awareness of. So that's kind of an interesting, I guess, juxtaposition. And I, don't, yeah, I, don't, I still haven't end. really figured out whether I sort of liked that kind of Richie Eddie Yeah, I mean, I my initial take was that it, it was a weird thing to do and that I felt like they were shoehorning something mm. in there that yeah. didn't, wouldn't you know wasn't canon as I said but you know it just felt a little bit weird like was it necessary um I found it interesting the Losers Club podcast were talking about it and they were saying how they felt or I can't remember who said it but someone was saying how they felt that maybe you've got this group of young people who are brought together because of these circumstances but each of them has something you know that they're struggling with Beverly's been you know abused by her father Ben struggles with his weight and he's been bullied um you know Bill's lost his brother but he also struggles with his stutter which is a lot more pronounced in the book Stan is Jewish and he has problems Mike is you know he he encounters racism on a daily basis in the school Richie's thing in the book is that he has glasses so it's a bit like Huh. Like I didn't know. I didn't know whether, and I think it's an interesting point. Maybe they felt like he didn't have anything to yeah. overcome, or rather, you know, his thing I to think, overcome was, oh, you're a bit blind. I like, think that's why it just felt strange to me. And also, it's the implication that actually, like, two men can't have a close can't friendship. Can't just have a really close without friendship, there being a sexual right? element. Yeah, to it, and which... I kind of the idea of needing to give Richie something else was kind of interesting. But I think I do still agree with you in that it's such a great friendship. It doesn't need that. Yeah, it just it doesn't a bit need like... to be romantic. And I think, you know, filmmakers and films are getting better at saying, like, men just have friendships sometimes. Yeah. It did feel a little bit like, hmm, with that. 
I'm all for representation, but when it's like, it feels very just kind of shoehorning for the sake of it, because this yeah. is what it felt like to me, is just like it was there for the sake of it, rather yeah. than being actually an explored kind of... Yeah, and like it was arc. like part of Richie's suppressed trauma that he yeah. fancied Eddie and then didn't deal with it over the years. That was a bit, that also didn't sit well for me. I think generally, though, we liked it better than we thought we would, had some nice Easter eggs, you know, but also the criticism is entirely valid. But I sort of breathe a sigh of relief that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Definitely wasn't, was it? Um, so now we've covered it chapter two at uh, the floor is yours to talk about Stephen King more widely. Yes, and I'm not going to go on, hark on and on and on because there are a whole other podcasts to do that. So that's great. To be honest, you could and I still wouldn't know what's real and what isn't. Yeah, I could just make it up. Yeah. But it was interesting that when we were asking for feedback on this, we were getting a lot of... Uh, we were getting a lot of responses. So clearly it's something that people are, you know, very into. And we are having a Stephen King uh, renaissance or a kingaissance at the moment. It's a very, you know, very popular thing in 2019. Stephen King, for me, is has always been of interest. He's an author of varying quality works. He's got this consistently huge output. He does kind of two novels a year, roughly, and has been doing so for decades. And he's got this ability to kind of mix genres and reinvent himself and also, you know, tap into a lot of uncanniness and paranoia of the world around us. And here is my really unpopular take of the day. In some ways, everyone's going to hate me for saying this, the reason that I love and have a lot of affection for Prince, the musician everyone's going to hate me for saying this, is kind of similar in that Prince has made some of the best records and songs of all time, but he is also a musician of varying, like varying quality work. He put out some records that are not great at all. They're slight stinkers. And he had a consistently huge output. I think that's something that's under-discussed about a lot of musicians and artists more widely, and you Mm -hmm. can include anyone in that, including filmmakers and writers and, and, you know, anyone that's producing a large body of work. I think that sometimes when when someone is is so held in such regard, Mm -hmm. there is a bit of an unwillingness or a way that people tend to overlook all, like the bad stuff the in their oeuvre bit. oh yeah to sidestep ever so slightly it's interesting that you mentioned prince because i was having a conversation with our friend jack redden the other day mm-hmm. about bruce springsteen and bruce springsteen is someone who's produced an awful lot of work mm-hmm. but there are some real like dregs yeah. in that back catalogue yeah. and when people talk about how great they are because bruce springsteen is is like god tier it's funny because people just like oh yeah there's all this amazing work but we'll just ignore like tunnel of love and like the the stuff that no one really enjoys and i do think that's true of prince and it's you know it's true i think when you're reaching that got as you said that god tier of artists the best artists have a consistently huge output because they have to have that output because it's what they're compelled to do as great artists they have an ability to mix genres and reinvent themselves which is a really key thing but they do have you know, it's a bumpy journey. Not all of it is great. The success rate can't always be 100 at all, no. all times. It would be truly mad for that to happen. And Prince was definitely someone like that. And Stephen King is the same. But, you know, you have to... At the end of the day, his earliest output, his first three novels were Carrie, Salem's Lot and The Shining. And in the first 10 years, he wrote Carrie. And that this isn't the entirety of his output in 10 years, but... You know, the standouts are Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, The Stand, The Dead Zone, Firestarter, Cujo, The Dark Tower, Christine and Pet Cemetery, which is astounding in terms of books within that genre. They are basically, that's like, 
they're pretty much all in the top 20 of horror books ever written like it's a crazy level of output completely and he's he's a cultural chameleon in that he has been able to reinvent himself but also he's seen as this sort of creator of throwaway pulpy lowbrow bestsellers but also some people see him as a literary genius he's kind of both it's interesting for me again because i come at this from completely so i will say after that i've never read any stephen king Mm -hmm. in my entire life all of my stephen king based knowledge comes from the films or the the tv shows Mm. that i've i've seen i'm aware of the books that he's written i could name you more than five i'm sure but i haven't actually read any myself and it's very interesting that until probably with in the last 10 years mm. if you'd said to me um would you ever read a Stephen King book or what do you know about Stephen King mm. I would have completely been of the opinion mm-hmm. like oh he just writes those like you know thrillers, pulpy like horror books mm. that like you know you see often on holiday or in like airport mm. shops or anything like yeah. that or on like charity shop bookshelves that kind mm. of thing and it's it's been very interesting for me throughout our friendship to mm. kind of gain an understanding of actually why that's the case why people have that opinion Mm -hmm. and it's something that we often I think um, talk about with regards to pop culture generally Mm -hmm. is this this kind of conflict not conflict Mm. per se but this juxtaposition between what we consider high art and why and what we consider low art and why and why the reasons that people end or out you know works films whatever why they end up in those locations absolutely and, and what how that affects your engagement of them and that for me is is why reconfiguring and thinking about Stephen King as someone actually like it's not why is it a bad thing that he's got this breadth of work why do people consider it you know oh well he just tosses out yeah exactly like someone who can write two books a year must be rubbish I mean Prince like why does that thousands of hours of music it doesn't mean it was rubbish it's it's really interesting and it's something you know this genre in particular it's something that I've along with everyone else, has battled their whole life. You know, I, I did an MA um, in literature and my chosen subject for my MA was like the European Gothic and Gothic literature. And again, that was seen as, you know, luckily the people I, the academics I spoke to obviously shared the same feelings as me, but a lot of people would, you know, there were people who were doing dissertations on Joseph Conrad and did not see what I was doing mm-hmm. as, you know, having the same inherent worth. I work in a very literary organisation. It's a literature charity. It's, you know... A national centre for championing, you know, really great quality literature. They completely are supportive of, you know, whatever I'm into. But they're again, some people might see that as a weird juxtaposition that, you know, Stephen King's probably my favourite writer. And yet I work in a very literary environment. It's funny, isn't it? It's, it's how does that happen? How do those kind of terms those kind of labels get placed on writers mm. and, and why you know mm. it's, I remember quite vividly when I finished my undergrad degree when I'd sort of finished written and submitted my dissertation the first thing I immediately read in the aftermath of that was the Twilight series because yeah. I was so I'd, I'd had such an intense period of, of reading these very literary worthy mm. texts that actually the thing that I wanted to read was something that I was just going to get real enjoyment out of. And yeah. I had a fun time, you know, yeah. like I d- I'm not, I don't, if someone said to me, have you read the Twilight series? I'd be like, yes, I have. And I've got a lot of thoughts on it. You know what I mean? And, mm. and it's, it's this kind of worthiness that I think is sometimes attached to literature that I do often think about like, a wh- why, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Why do we consider 
X book better than Mm -hmm. Y book. And that, from an outside perspective, that, you know, Stephen King is a real prime example of how Mm -hmm. people don't actually kind of think about that as you know have having worth having sort yeah of, and also you I mean. probably haven't spent any time reading yeah. those books and i think in literature in particular it often seems like anything popular or commercially successful becomes instantly deemed low culture that's when it becomes low culture and king has pretty much been popular from the very start but you know that doesn't take into account his completely unrivaled impact on the genre the fact that his stories are being adapted and reread and remembered like decades on and will definitely into the future i mean looking at the list of adaption adaptations um which is what we were going to kind of talk about uh, you know we have got so i i did a count so the number of films stephen king films that have um already been adapted from his books so we're starting with carrie in 76 through to it chapter two there are 46 and we're talking about brian de palma stanley kubrick george a romero david cronenberg john carpenter like huge directors that's you know the whole point of this was we're talking about some of our favorite um adaptations Mm. of stephen king's work and i think for me i'd forgotten actually how many things i've seen are actually rooted in stephen Mm. king which then subsequently made me think about the fact that well actually if you're if there's this idea that actually his books aren't worthy mm-hmm. of attention mm-hmm. of kind of engaging with then actually why do so many adaptations of them exist so as a, like as a piece of like you know as, as source as yeah. source content why do people keep going back to it and it's yeah. not like it's if you think about like the boom of westerns in, yeah, in yeah, the yeah, 50s yeah. and 60s or something and then like the spy genre it's yeah. not like there are some pockets and then there's nothing out this is like Longevity. consistent out of the gate you know like I, I completely forgot that Carrie is is, is it 70, 76 76 for that to be adapted for the screen by Brian De Palma... Two years after it was published Two years after well. it was released. And it's, like, one of the best films of all time. Yeah. You know, it's it's a legendary for the for the genre. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I found, when I was asking people for to sort of let us know what their favourite um, Stephen King on screen pieces of content were, Carrie was one that kept coming Always. up. Because it's it had such an impact. Well, yeah. and actually, that says something about the writing, if anything. Yeah. But actually, the story itself... There was something there that Brian De Palma was like, "Yes, I'm going to do this." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got you've got 24 TV shows, uh, 46 films, and 17 other works that include comic book adaptations, stage adaptations. So Carrie the musical, you know, there was a stage adaptation that's crazy. So there's 87 so far, and that does not include everything that's coming up. From Creepshow and Shudder, Doctor Sleep, Firestarter, Hearts in Atlantis, In the Tall Glass, the Grass, The Jaunt, The Long Walk, Revival, The Stand, Sleeping Beauties, Tommy Knockers, Salem's Lot, From a Buick 8, Liz's Story and The Outsider. And that is just the cusp of it at the moment. It is a crazy amount that is being adapted. And as you say, like, how could something not have value if we are consistently going back to it that much to draw inspiration? Like, it's going to stand the test of time a lot longer than a lot of other things. Completely. So quickly, shall we go through what our our personal standouts are? Bearing in mind that I definitely have not seen all of these as well. Like, really, there is a huge wealth of uh, Stephen King content that I am yet to even process or get through. So uh, it's, you know, it's just the highlights. Definitely. So uh, should I go first? Yeah, go for it. I mean, my list will be like significantly smaller than yours because. Um, I mean, I did five, so. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I did, did some of oh, the. Oh, well, I did a couple of shout outs, actually. Three, four, five. I did six. So I did. I mean, it would be remiss to not mention The Shining. Um, Obviously. And I think actually it's worth mentioning that 
these lists will be interesting and I'm sure they will be very comparable and there's a question about why certain things come up that I'll come back to. So of course Shining, Carrie as yeah. well, that Brian De Palma adaptation is just like next level. It really, I mean it really is like the real, for me the real, the, the most, it's horrific and the real horror of it is in the high school bullying let alone it's Everything awful. Else, I mean, I, I, I haven't. I've seen it probably two or three times. The last time I actually saw it, I think, was when we went. We went to a, a Prince Charles. Oh cinema God! What all a time to see it. Saw some horror films, and that I think was that the opener. I think it was. It was, isn't it? It's just like a such a kicking of the teeth. Sissy Spacek is is just she's phenomenal. So amazing. It's worth noting. Actually, it's one of the few horror films to ever be nominated for multiple Academy Awards. And yeah, Sissy Spacek was nominated for Best Actress. She's just brilliant in it. Um, Stand by Me as well. Um, oh yes, based on the short story. Oh, I just was so obsessed with Stand by Me when I was a kid. So I think like, that everyone so, went through a phase, didn't they? So good, and and for all of the same reasons that it is, you know, the nostalgia, the coming of age, the friendship, River, um, Phoenix. River Phoenix, Corey Feldman. Um, it is, I think, the first film that Stephen King believed was like a successful translation of. Any oh, of interesting. His that seems to be books. a recurring, and that's eighty six. So oh, yeah, it had been a few. It had been about ten years, and that was the first one that he thought was actually good. Um, Misery as well. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, directed by Rob Reiner, who also did Stand By Me. Um, I forget as well, a thing that I realised this week is that um, Rob Reiner's production company is called Castle Rock. Is it? Yes, I didn't know is. that. Um, Amazing. Because Castle Rock then went on to do Seinfeld. Um, oh, really? That's essentially how it's bankrolled. That's so funny. Yeah, um, Rob Reiner as well. So he directed, uh, like I said, Stand By Me and Misery, but then he also directed When Harry, Harry Met Sally, which is like oh, one of my most favourite films. What a real contrast. It's just such a contrast. Um, that, that film. Yeah, and also worth noting that that is the only film based on a Stephen King book that won an Oscar, and that was Kathy Bates. She's so actress. good in that. She's fucking unnerving. She takes hell. fandom to a new level. I, I worry, as we've said on Twitter, I yeah. do worry that I am I could reach like Kathy Bates' level of, of fandom. Of fandom. Um, I quite like The Green Mile perfectly perfectly legitimate yeah uh, i haven't watched that in ages i love tom hanks and that's a good tom hanks performance in mm-hmm. my humble opinion um oh, it's lovely. complete oscar bait and it's probably a bit cringe now i haven't seen it for many many years but i do i do love it um mm-hmm. directed by frank darabont who also directed uh shawshank redemption mm. which i like thomas made the revelation this week that he hasn't seen it which seems weird it's to me. shocking but also i wouldn't be like tom you have to go and watch it right now no. i do find it interesting that it tops a lot of best films ever well, lists this was the thing i was just going to segue into actually because i it's interesting for me. i was listening to an episode of the rewatchables podcast this week where they were talking about shawshank redemption mm. and an interesting thing they raised in that was sort of how it is a stephen king adaptation mm-hmm. a lot but, of people don't know that but as a well. lot of people don't mm. know that because it's not it's so different from a lot of the other stephen king mm-hmm. adaptations mm-hmm. in that it's not necessarily rooted in I say horror, horror as a genre, yeah. term, but it is in it's a completely different genre yeah. of field. And I I always forget, like the Green Mile actually, mm. I always forget that they are Stephen King. They are based in Stephen King. Um, Interesting that a lot of people would regard those as like the high culture, yes, the high well, culture film adaptations yeah. of Stephen King's uh, yeah back catalogue. And that was going to be something I, j- I was sort of going to just draw attention to actually, because like you say, the Shaw- Shawshank Redemption I think is like IMDb's top film mm-hmm. of all time. Mad. 
it's it's a good film. It's mad. Like, you know, it's it's a it's a good watch. You've got some good performances from Tim Robbins and uh, Morgan Freeman, of course. It's not the best though, guys. But it's it's just funny, isn't it, to think that actually like, the greatest film of all time, according to a lot of people, is a Stephen King adaptation. But they probably don't don't even know it. That it's a Stephen You're probably King sniffy adaptation. about Stephen King. Yeah, exactly, because I think there is a sniffiness around it, and, and that's mm-hmm. quite a worthy, you know, film. But if it was a, it, it would never have had the success if it was based on a Stephen King horror no. adaptation, would it? And I think that's very interesting. So those those are my main ones. Um, some other things I forgot that were oh, I've, I've written it brackets remake only. The original is the reason I hate clowns, which we've discussed as well. There were, when I was looking through that list as well, like I say, there were a lot in there that I hadn't actually realised were Stephen King adaptations, and that's probably because I just have a complete lack of knowledge about Stephen King. But then I also th- maybe think it's because there are a lot of other genres that I think he creeps into mm-hmm. that because people just do assume He's a big that... fan of westerns. He's a big fan of sci-fi. Yeah, or... completely. So that's why, you know, that, it was an interesting exercise for me to look back and sort of think about the things that I've enjoyed most of all. What mm. are some others that you might have? I think mine are very similar to yours. So I sort of rate in chronological order, I'd said the standouts are, and they are the standouts for everyone, let's be yeah, honest. Yeah, I think so. Carrie... The Shining, as I say, um, The Shining is not Stephen King's favourite adaptation. Um, the Stanley Kubrick one, I mean. Um, he does not like it. I find this very interesting. Mm. Was it just that he didn't like Kubrick's take on it? Or, and, and sub-question, is it because it differs so much from the book? It's interesting. So he did uh, an interview with Paris Review. This is Stephen King, in which he spoke about his dislike of uh, Kubrick's The Shining. And he said it was too cold. It had no sense of emotional investment in the family whatsoever. He felt that the treatment of Shelley Duvall as Wendy was insulting to women, basically a scream machine. Kubrick didn't seem to have any idea that Jack Nicholson was playing the same motorcycle psycho that he played in all those other biker films he did. He said, it's certainly beautiful to look at gorgeous sets or those steady cam shots. I used to call it a Cadillac with no engine in it. You don't can't do anything with it except admire it as sculpture. You've taken away its primary purpose, which is to tell a story. I think there's a couple of things. King didn't like the way that the ending was changed in particular. Is it significantly um, different? It's completely different. And I think there are reasons for that. He obviously didn't like that. Um, and he didn't think that the family had... The, the emotional treatment that they should have had. That is something that I'll bring up in a minute with regards to uh, some of the quality of the adaptations that you get, the varying quality. It's it, There's a lot of emotion in that book that is hard to... How do I put this? It is a it is a book. It is a horror book about a haunted hotel, but it is also about a family in emotional turmoil because the father is a raging alcoholic, and most of the book is is Jack Torrance telling himself that he really needs a fucking drink, and that is what the book is about. And this was written at a time when Stephen King was an alcoholic, and I feel that maybe it is a book that is particularly close to him emotionally yeah. for that reason. Yeah. And I think he found it insulting that uh, Torrance in the film, that wasn't really the focus of the film at all, was that emotional, you know, that family and the way that that family had been broken apart by his drinking. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't really feature that in the film. It's a very different film to what yeah. came about yeah, in yeah. a horror film about a haunted hotel or whatever. So I think that's what it is, really which is interesting. Mm. Christine, I really enjoy. That's 1983, John Carpenter. I'm a sucker for anything set in high school. And also it's just a homage to like 50s culture Mm. and sort of high school aesthetics and the soundtrack's amazing. It's just very goofy. It's very funny. Some people like it. Some people aren't fussed. I think it's really good fun. 
Stand By Me, as you said, just such affection for that film. It's really, really lovely. Misery as well. TV-wise, actually both recent. TV with Stephen King isn't great. I haven't seen any Stephen King TV, I don't think. No, a lot of it is not worth writing home about either. But Castle Rock, which started last year and is about to go into its second season, was really great, actually. It had its weak points, but it was really great. And that's a horror anthology series, which is based around Stephen King's works and his sort of characters and themes and settings that isn't directly lifted from his book. Um, but it's got everything that a Stephen King book does well. I think it's got that small town environment, a combination of sort of myth and the supernatural plus real attention to the actual characters and their inner lives. And I think that's why it works really well. Um, and then Mr. Mercedes actually is a really good series based on the Bill Hodges trilogy. The third season's just started. And again, that sort of begins, the first book is basically like a police procedural about a serial killer. Um, and it morphs into something slightly more weird and supernatural because I don't think King can help himself later on. Brendan Gleeson's amazing in it. It's definitely worth seeing. But it does it does play out more like a crime drama in lots of respects. So I think that's really good. And then honourable mentions, I was going to say The Mist, um, oh, particularly okay. for that ending. And the ending of The Mist differs from the book as well. And it's a really bold ending in the film. The Dead Zone's pretty good. And uh, Pet Cemetery, the original Pet Cemeteries, I enjoy as well. We got a lot of feedback from people and what they like. I was really surprised, actually. Yeah. Do in you, a good way. Yeah. Do you have any where you want to go through? Yeah, I'll probably pick the ones that you are less likely to have. Em said, I really love the Mike Flanagan Gerald's game. Carla Gugino is so amazing. I watched a lot of horror and spooky movies and it's one of the few I don't think I can watch again because it stayed with me and really got under my skin. Um, I will always watch the original It, not because it's particularly good, but because Tim Curry is spectacular. He is. Plus The Shining, of course, which is, in my opinion, one of the top three horror movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, Kelly said, Carrie, I still jump at the end of this movie with a hand coming up from the grave, even though I've seen it so many times. Selene said, The Shining, Dead Zone and Salem's Lot. Faye said, Carrie's the best. I also look like Christine a lot. Pet Cemetery too. I personally hate it in every form. Also notable <laughs> mention for Cujo. Amy says, Carrie 100%. The shower scene terrified me for so long when I was younger. Suzanne said, Firestarter. I was way too young to watch it, but that's where my crush on you began and also my obsession with mind control. And Sarah said, the original It and the OG Pet Cemetery, also a big fan of Firestarter. And then everyone else I've got, you probably have as well. So Yeah, I can't remember who you've just said, so I might repeat a few. Fine. Wes said, The Dead Zone for Christopher Walken. Fine. Carrie, The Shining, Apt Pupil. Apt Pupil is one that I didn't realise was based on a Stephen King. that's exactly what Wes said as well. Yeah, and I remember seeing Apt Pupil, actually, um, and it really sticking with me. Now, more for negative reasons, because of the Bryce (laughs) side of things. But yeah, I didn't... When I was going through the list of adaptations, I saw it listed, and I was like, oh, I had absolutely no idea. Who knew? Who knew? Um, McBride said, I it, the TV original. Jake said Storm of the Century, which is really interested. That's a TV series. It's not based on a novel, but it's a Stephen King screenplay. Okay. Ben said The Shining, Stand By Me, Dreamcatcher, controversial, and Carrie. Phil said The Shining, Children of the Corn. I did not know if he was trolling me at this point because that seems ridiculous. When he sent me his feedback, he said... Children of the Corn, I'm not joking. So oh, there you go. Phil. And The Running Man. Um, and then Wes lost his mind because he forgot about The Running Man. Stacey said, Stand By Me, Carrie, The Shining, Shawshank Redemption. Jess, Stand By Me, The Shining, Misery. Hattie, Misery. You can see the, the ones coming up. Uh, mm. Richard, who hosts the Constant Reader podcast, said, Salem's Lot, Mr. Mercedes. And The Night Flyer is very underrated. 
Freya said Christine, Stand By Me, Room uh, 1408, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile. Dion said The Mist, Salem's Lot, Carrie, Misery, Pet Cemetery, Creep Show. John Bear said Salem's Lot, Rob said Shawshank Redemption, Flick said Misery, Stand By Me, The Shining, 112263. Tori said Maximum Overdrive and Stand By Me. Uh, and Sam said stand by me as well. So interestingly, or not so interestingly, it's a lot of the same coming up. And I think, I mean, one of the questions that always kind of sticks in my mind with this is that for someone who has had so many adaptations, why are so many of them so bad? Well, this is what I thought from an outside perspective, is that, like, it's it's it was interesting for me to look back at them and kind of go like, oh, here are the ones that I've heard of. Um, here are the ones that I know are quite good but I just haven't seen for whatever reason. And then there is lots of the others that I've heard bad stuff about. There are so many stinkers in that. And it's just, it's it's interesting, isn't it? It really is. How the quality varies. There are so many stinkers in the list. There are so many bad adaptations of Stephen King. And I don't think it is because the books are so bad that I don't think it is that. That is not the case. I don't know what it is. I think maybe for me personally, when we were talking about, when I was talking about The Shining and how the sort of the relationships in the family and the the internal emotional turmoil being faced by Jack Torrance is I think that's hard to transfer onto the screen. A lot of Stephen King and what is great about Stephen King is the character development and a lot of it is internal and, you know, thought process and observation and the way that characters think. And that is a very hard thing to get across. I think actually you could say that a lot about adaptations as a whole. It's interesting mm. that we're having this discussion of books, like, in, a, in yeah. a week where The Goldfinch was released mm. and Donna Tartt's yeah, that's so the true, film actually. based on Donna Tartt's novel and that's been torn apart in the press. And I'm, I mean, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't actually speak to what the film is like. But it's interesting to think about. I mean, that book is quite a, a large tome it sort of has lots of different narratives spanning a lot of different time and my skepticism in advance as soon as I saw that it was being announced to be adapted was like how on earth are they going to tackle this story in in the confines of a film Um, and that seems to be a lot of the issue of it and I do I do think that when you've got a lot of internal monologuing Mm. and you kind of the books are so good at being able to evoke a feeling Mm -hmm. and an atmosphere that I think when you're reading something on the page you kind of get a sense of it that Mm -hmm. often I think doesn't necessarily transfer across to screen and when I think think about some of my my favorite book adaptations even those have flaws where Mm -hmm. I think well actually like there was that bit in the book that made me feel this particular way. But when Mm. I saw it on screen, like it was good, but it didn't really Mm. give me the same vibes. And I also think as well that there are so many books that I really, really love. But at the back of my mind, I really worry about them being optioned to Mm. be adapted. And that's exactly how I felt about The Goldfinch. Was When I saw that it was going to be made into a film, I was just like, it's either going to be the best thing in the entire world or they're going to fuck it up because I think there's no middle ground for Mm -hmm. it. And I think maybe, I think you're completely right. I think when there's a lot of... When you've got like an interiority in a book, mm. the ability to get that feeling mm-hmm. across yeah. on screen it's really hard it is because really you're hard. it's it's visual, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's it's just completely different. Yeah, you can't write. Yeah, you can't write a screenplay based, or I assume you can't write a screenplay based on you know a whole chapter in which nothing is said or no real action is taken. No, because in 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 a sense, you then 
there becomes like well i could you could rely on a narrator but as mm-hmm. we said when we were talking about ad astra narration in films is is really hit or miss yeah really hit or miss it's a yeah it's a really interesting one and i personally i think that's why do you think a lot of the time as well it comes down to the fact that Stephen King does write a lot of books which are within a genre horror mm-hmm. that is often mishandled on screen? And we've talked yeah. about before about the way that like with horror films, they're either very, very good mm-hmm. or they're really shit because they're churned out so quickly and people yeah. think that they're uh, something that can just be, not mishandled, but mm-hmm. th- it's easy. There's, or they're, it's very, easy. they're very action-driven or they're very... Yeah, it's yeah. like you can make things on low cost and the impact mm-hmm. of them is quite huge financially mm-hmm. at the box office because people want to always want to go and see them so Mm. i I do think sometimes there could be an arrogance perhaps i think so we'll option a stephen king book because you know we can make that into a like a scary movie to come out of this particular time and it will be the quality of it's less Mm -hmm. of an issue it's more actually the fact that it's absolutely i think that's a problem with horror in film and horror in literature it's kind of interesting that one of stephen king's biggest critics is Harold Bloom from Yale University who sort of famously said that Stephen King is beneath the notice of any serious reader who has experienced Proust, Joyce, Henry James, Faulkner and all the other masters of the novel. Which, I mean, is a laughable list, really. What a lovely list of men. As as two people that have varying literary degrees of of you know, differing kinds. I think that that list in particular, I've, my experience of having to read Faulkner at university, it's like I probably would have rather a Stephen King novel, to be honest. Right. Uh, and there's, you know, and again, it's that, it's that debate between. It's worth, isn't it? It is worth. And whether you see worth as um, a few people being able to possibly digest, you know, Joyce's Finnegan's weight versus a huge number of people being able to access something. Um, and it's what you see as valuable. Well, it's the popular being bad. It is. It just comes down to that really in a lot of ways and actually I think there's an interesting reversal um the same can be said as to why people might think that Stephen King's books are going to be crappy when they haven't read them but they may have experienced the fact that the adaptation a lot of adaptations are quite poor and I think that people assume because the adaptations are poor it's because the writing is poor so like crappy rubbish movie obviously means that the book is rubbish yeah so yeah the same applies either way and you know it's interesting that Charles Dickens was completely reviled in his time for being like a shitty commercial writer and is now seen as the author that he is now. One of the and bastions of English. Yeah, it all completely comes down to that idea of what you, you see as high and low culture um, and what you think is valuable. Stephen King has a huge output, a huge number of books that are going to s- stay in circulation for a long time. He was one of the first people to experiment with a lot of new technologies like ebooks and you know things like that and again actually interestingly prince was one of the first people to trial you know digital music downloadable music he's king donates like four million a year to libraries like he's got this huge huge impact in you know so many areas and people don't give it a chance based on a whole myriad of things but a lot of it comes down to what you see as what you see as worthwhile not worthwhile and that is my that is my essay that is my ted talk on stephen king I enjoyed your TED talk. I mean, it was—it's been a—it's been a nice sort of reflection for me, actually, as someone who hasn't really engaged with his books, not for any reason other than I just haven't ever gotten around to it. No, what, and what it might not ever be your thing. Like, no, I mean, what would you? What are some of your favourites that you considered if you were going to recommend to anyone, i.e., me, a good place to start? What do you think? I mean, you're currently embarking upon a grand project of reading everything. Yeah, it's taking a while. <laughs> 
I was going to do it in a straight order, but it started going like, well, I can't do this on a podcast, can I? It started meandering, going all over the place. I mean, I've said The Shining to you before is like one yeah. of my favourite Stephen King books. I think it encapsulates a lot of what is great about Stephen King. Actually, the first three, which are the Carrie, The Shining and Salem's Lot, are like a really amazing start. A, none of them are completely huge. Mm-hmm. B, you get a really nice mix of male and female like protagonists. And I'm not saying that Stephen King isn't flawed because I think Stephen King's got some massive flaws, mm-hmm. but so have all of my favourite artists. But well, right. I think they're like a good start. Any of those are a good start. I think it is interesting in the way that this just loops back to a lot of conversations we have around like taste cultures and the high and low culture and what's regarded as, you know, worth someone's while and what's not. And I think we're always making a case for being able to love both Mm -hmm. and yeah there's an argument for anything being worthwhile particularly in pop culture yeah definitely after all of that obsession of the week do you want to go or should i just list all of mine you go first got a lot go on one chris evans doing a milk advert in mexico (laughs) i didn't know he did that yeah two tom holland was briefly out but he's back in the mcu yeah seen that Three, the fact that my Instagram was stuck on a photograph of Sebastian Stan for two days because I don't understand why there was a glitch. I was enjoying looking at his face. I feel like it was deliberate, but go on. Four, Sebastian Stan at Toronto Film Festival with Jamie Dornan. That was a lot. That was a time, wasn't it? You can tell we've had some space in between recording. Five, that little tidbit that Robert Pattinson did about spitting. Oh, for God's sake. Leave it at that. Google that if you haven't seen it. Mum, don't Google it. Six, (laughs) Kieran Culkin in Succession. Lovely. Seven, Kendall Roy's rap in Succession from last night that's an experience i don't think i'll ever get over and then i've lost count eight maybe uh brad pitt being brad pitt because i can't i don't ever want to be over brad pitt my phone background is now this lovely black and white picture of brad pitt in a nice oh, suit lovely Just look at his little phone. mine's from the gq shoot please just good, so you good know uh, so what are your these are those are many of my obsessions of the week and the last few weeks yeah, I mean, mine is similar. Brad Astra, mainly. Brad Astra. Brad Astra. Sad Astra. Sad Astra. Dad Astra. Dad Astra. Yeah, like the only... Brad yeah, Astra. Truly the only man I'd like to call daddy. That, mostly, fundamentally, Brad Pitt. Fine. Um, also, I'd just like to redraw attention to Lenny Kravitz. Ooh, a, because he's a man of Brad Pitt's exact age. Who How old is Brad Pitt's 55. 55. So hot. As is Lenny Kravitz, unbelievably hot. Spent a lot of time Googling him this week. Um, But he also lost his vintage glasses and was very sad. So he set up an email address, should anyone find them. What's the address? Kravitzglasses at gmail.com. I loathe to think how many nudes he's had to that account. I like that... Um, Even I contemplated sending a nude to that account. Well, I like that you you brought this to my attention and then that was your immediate reaction was like, wow, I wonder how many nudes he's had sent. And I was like, oh. So many nudes. Yeah, that's probably true, isn't it? It's probably going to be like more nudes than it is actual information about the whereabouts of his glasses. Absolutely. Just having to just go through so many pictures of genitals in order to hopefully get his glasses back. (laughs) Has he found his glasses? I don't know, but I don't think Lenny Kravitz has got eyes. Just based on the fact that I've never seen him without sunglasses. <laughs> I like the sentimentality he has towards one pair of glasses Bless that he's willing heart. to give out his his credentials. What a sexy, for, um, sexy man. Uh, poor man hopes he gets his specs back. So that's us done. 
I'm so sorry it's been so long. Southern Chips promised to make it less long next time. No, we um, don't. You can find us online, Twitter, we're at the thirst, soundcloud.com forward slash the thirst pod. You can subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts by searching for the thirst. Instagram, we're at the thirst pod. Our blog is the thirstpod.wordpress.com and you can also find us on Facebook. Bye. Bye. Bye.